This is Jocko Podcast number 354 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. In August of 2000, the militant Islamic group Abu Sayyaf in the, in the southern Philippines broadcast that it had captured a CIA agent. The truth was not as newsworthy or as valuable to the rebels. Abu Sayyaf had kidnapped Jeffrey Schilling, a 24-year-old American who had traveled near their base in Holo Island. A California native, Schilling became a hostage with a $10 million price tag on his head. At the time, I was a supervisory special agent attached to the FBI's Elite Crisis Negotiation Unit, the CNU. The CNU is the equivalent of the Special Forces of Negotiations. It's attached to the FBI's hostage rescue team, HRT. Both are national counterterrorist response assets. They are the best of the best. I was a natural for the Schilling case. I had spent some time in the Philippines and had an extensive background in terrorism from my New York City days assigned to the Joint Terrorism Task Force, JTTF. A few days after Schilling became a hostage, my partner Chuck Regini and I flew to Manila to run the negotiations. Along with Jim Nixon, the FBI's highest official in Manila, we conferred with the top Philippine military brass. They agreed to let us guide the negotiations. Then we got down to business. One of us would take charge of the negotiation strategy for the FBI and consequently for the US government. That became my role. With the support of my colleagues, my job was to come up with the strategy, get it approved, and implement it. Our principal adversary was Abu Sabaya the rebel leader who personally negotiated for Schilling's ransom. Sabaya was a veteran of the rebel movement with a violent past. He was straight out of the movies, a terrorist sociopath killer. He had a history of rape, murder, and beheadings. He liked to record his bloody deeds on video and then send them to the Philippine media. Sabaya always wore sunglasses, a bandana, a black t-shirt, and camo pants. He thought it made him a more dashing figure. If you look for any photos of Abu Sayyaf terrorists from this period, you will always see one in sunglasses. That's Sabaya. Sabaya loved, loved, loved the media. He had the Philippine reporters on speed dial. They'd call him and ask him questions in Tagalog, his native tongue. He would answer in English because he wanted the world to hear his voice on CNN. They should make a movie about me, he would tell reporters. In my eyes, Sabaya was a cold-blooded businessman with an ego as big as Texas, a real shark. Sabaya knew he was in the commodities game. In Jeffrey Schilling, he had an item of value. How much could he get for it? He would find out, and I intended it to be a surprise he wouldn't like. As an FBI agent, I wanted to free the hostage and bring the criminal to justice. As a result of the Schilling case, I would become the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator. And that right there is a book, is an excerpt from a book. The book is called Never Split 
The Difference, which is written by a man named Chris Voss. Chris Voss spent 24 years with the FBI where he spent time as the lead crisis negotiator for the New York City Division of the FBI, was also the lead international kidnapping negotiator. He was trained as a negotiator not only by the FBI, but also by Harvard Law School and Scotland Yard, which is London's Metropolitan Police. He worked the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, the TWA Flight 800 explosion, the, cat, the kidnapping of Jill Carroll in Iraq in 2006, as well as countless other dynamic situations around the world. And incredible experiences. And it's a privilege tonight to have Chris Voss with us here to discuss what he's been through and what he's learned. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks, man. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's uh by the way, if I ever have anybody else read my my book, I'll have you do the reading. <laughs> um let me know. Let me know. I'm I'm here to I'm here to help out. Uh yeah, fantastic book. Yeah, if if, if people if you don't have this yet, you it's never split the difference. The subtitle is Negotiating as if your life depended on it. So, fantastic book. And we actually tried to do this before COVID or maybe right before COVID, oh, yeah. but it didn't work out. And so glad you could finally get out here and definitely looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let, let's, before we jump into the book and all your lessons, let's, let's get a little bit of background on you and how you ended up here today. So wh- wh- where'd you grow up? Where'd you come from? Small town in Iowa. Uh, son of, uh, of Richard and Joyce Voss. My dad was a blue collar entrepreneur, owned his own business. My mom was initially a stay-at-home mom. That's what they were back in those days. And then ultimately, you know, as the kids grew up, got involved in my father's aspects of my father's business. What was the dad's business? Uh, oil jobber originally, a middleman between uh, shell oil and the end user, which would usually be um, large farms, small companies. And then really the business, when he bought it, was home heating oil. Mm. And I can remember my father going out in the middle of the night in the middle of winter because somebody's furnace shut down. He had to fix it or they're going to freeze. And then uh, after he got into the business, according to him, um, not not independently verified, but it certainly was a case, gas company came in and gave everybody that had fuel oil furnaces free natural gas service furnaces. Took away all his customers. By the time that I graduated high school, we were one of the only houses that I knew that was still burning uh, fuel oil for, for heat. But he adapted. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you got to adapt. He expanded his business, bought some gas stations, built some convenience stores, saw himself as much in the energy business as a fuel oil business, and just adapted. And so what were you doing growing up? Were you, were you playing sports in school? Do you I, like school? What was the deal there? Yeah, well, I played football and basketball, and and if I wanted to run track, I was allowed. There were certain things I wasn't allowed to do, like <laughs> like well, one, one year one year I wanted to play golf. You know, every every high school's got a golf team, uh-huh. and the old man just wasn't having. It. He wasn't seeing <laughs> that as as a as legitimate um, sporting activity that could d- divert me away from working for him. Uh-huh. So you know, I had to. My father believed he put a roof over your head. He fed you. He clothed you. 
you owe. You're going to go to work. You got paid, <laughs> but yeah, you're going to work. So what were you working at the gas stations and whatnot? Uh, mostly, um, I, I, the only time I ever worked at a gas station, it was for one that he didn't own, and it was a business associate who wanted to hire me on. But most of the time, it was um, whatever needed to be done. Maintenance, driving trucks, driving tractors, cutting grass, painting. Like, I, I did a, painted a lot of stuff in the summertime. I, to this day, I hate to paint. <laughs> he, you know, he needed, he needed a house painted. He had kids. Here, here's, here's a bucket of paint. Here's a brush. Here's a scaffold. Get paint busy. The <laughs> well, the, my favorite one was he um, wanted a new garage, wanted to get, build, you know, the house we bought had a single-car garage. You barely fit that one in. He wants a new garage. I'm, I'm probably about 11 or 12 at the time. My older sister's 13 or 14. He hands us crowbars and says, go out in the backyard and tear down the garage. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then so we, tear, we pretty much tear the whole thing down. And then we got the foundation left. And you, you got to knock the foundation out. And uh, the old man thinks, all right, well, I'll go run a jackhammer. I'll put my kid, my 12-year-old, on a jackhammer <laughs> on, on the foundation. And I, I don't know. I'm like, all right, Dad, you know. And it, the foundation was so big, I couldn't break it up with a jackhammer. So he had, finally asked to hire a contractor. And this guy comes in with a backhoe. And I'm thinking, <laughs> an adult man needs a backhoe to take this out, and I'm out here with a hammer and nails and a jackhammer, and I'm 12. Jack. So uh, you do, are you doing good in school? Fair. Um, I was capable of better grades than I felt like getting. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly a B student. Did, did you have interest in going to college? What was your... What was your future looking like when you were like 16 years old? College college was always part of the game plan. Like mm-hmm. my, for whatever reason, it was just always accepted that all of us, uh, older sister and two younger, accepted we were going to go to college. Your man was going to spring for four years of tuition. If you graduated or not, that was on you. Finite amount of money, you know, got got certain amount of money put in my checking account, start of every session. If I spent it or not, it was up to me. Um and I just, you know, it was just, and then whatever happened after that was pretty much up to us. And so where'd you end up going to college? Iowa State University. My older sister went there one reason to go. Um, you know, I really idolized her growing up, and she was there sort of plowing the ground. It was far enough away from home mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have to work in the evenings or be expected to work on the weekends. <laughs> You know, because it was you a had three, to get out of that work radius. I had to get out of work radius. Three and a half hour drive. <laughs> on a whim, he can't call me back at four because he needs something done at five. <laughs> but it was also close enough to get back on a weekend if I needed to for whatever reason. And no wrestling for you growing up in Iowa. Ah, good observation. No, nah, I wasn't. I wasn't into wrestling. Uh, home of a lot of great wrestling. Oh, Dan yeah, Gable, sure. a bunch, bunch of folks. Iowa State Cyclones were running championship after championship yeah. in those days. Um, the the 190-pound wrestler Frank Santana, I remember him. But, no, I was a basketball player. Mm-hmm. I wasn't those, a grappler. Those seasons clash. Now, at what point did you start looking at law enforcement? Actually, when I was 16, a buddy of mine and I went and saw, a, uh, based on a true story, true life movie, The Super Cops, Two cops in New York. Somebody recently actually found me a DVD of it and sent it to me. Um, 
these guys worked in Bed-Stuy back when Bed-Stuy was a really bad area. White dudes, very black area. Community loved them, loved them. These guys locked up bad people and the good people in the community appreciated the heck out of it. And these guys were extremely creative. I didn't realize that at the time. The other thing that really um, attracted me to them, complete mavericks, like didn't pay attention to what the bosses told them. And put a lot of bad people in jail. Were very, very creative about it. And uh, the uh, the community actually nicknamed them Bat Rap, Batman and Robin. That's so, that's awesome. Except for the dude that got stuck being Robin. Right? Yeah, who wants to be Robin, right? <laughs> but then, then uh, me and my buddy saw this when we, I remember we were sixteen, and we both got struck at that moment in time. We wanted to be in law enforcement. And I stayed, and in, in, um, law enforcement is occasionally a harsh reality. And my buddy went to Phoenix, got on with the police department there, and the harshness of it, he just wasn't built for it, and he didn't last. This was the guy that saw the movie with you? Yeah. Did you, what did you study in college? Um, ultimately, it was a business degree. Uh, they didn't call it that back then. They it would call it industrial administration, mm-hmm. but it was a business degree. And uh, I started out originally, you know, I, I got in the engineering school. I switched out as soon as I was there, <laughs> switched to sociology. But then I realized that a lot of sociologists out of work, what if I changed my mind about being a cop? So I decided to uh, go to business just to have the flexibility of mm-hmm. going whatever direction I wanted to go. So did you graduate in four years? Four, you got out in four years. And then was it straight to the police academy somewhere? Yeah, I went, well, I initially, I wanted to go to Kansas City, Missouri. I, uh, I'd i never been there, but everybody in that part of the world, the three cities for choices were principally Kansas City, St. Louis, and Chicago. Now, originally, I had my heart set on San Francisco. Hmm. And because we had visited there, my family went there when I was about 18, I thought, this is a cool town. It's a really interesting place. And then uh, a thing called Proposition came through in California. Proposition 13 came through in California where they cut back on all the property taxes. I figured they were going to impact the municipal budgets negatively. Probably a guy from out of state was going to have trouble getting hired. So then I just decided stay local. And everybody that I knew that had been to Kansas City said, this is a great town. And so I just went out and applied completely out of the blue. They They told me they were not hiring. When I graduated, I remember when I graduated, I was really depressed because I didn't know where I was going to go. Didn't want to go back home and work for my father. But I had nowhere else to go. And Kansas City, although they knew internally that June 1, it was going to be a new fiscal year and a new world, they were telling me at the time, no, nah, we got no idea when we were going to hire. Just no idea. This is May. So they had to have known they were going to hire in June. And a new fiscal year came in. They started a new class. I was in a class. Mm-hmm. How'd they notify you? Oh, interesting. I may have gotten a letter. I don't, I don't even actually remember. So you didn't think you had a job, then all of a sudden you got a job. Suddenly I had a job. And then and in the meantime, like I'm, I'm back working for my dad, driving a truck. Your dad's like got your life plotted out for yeah, you Yeah, he's at like, this you're point. fine here, kid, you know? <laughs> and, and also... Like, just to get into law enforcement, I remember I applied for sheriff's department, got turned down, and then I had done an internship with the Iowa Department of Public Safety, and 
I can't remember exactly why. I don't think I wanted to be in the Iowa. I didn't want to be in the Iowa Highway Patrol. If I was going to be uniform, I wanted to be in a city. And I remember being told from the police, uh, people at, in the Department of Public Safety, like you could walk right into the Highway Patrol because I'd had an internship with them the year before. So they knew me. They knew I was an honest guy and that however innovative I was, I also really wasn't a rule breaker. You know, I was going to follow the rules. Um, but I, I didn't want to I didn't want to be a highway patrolman. So I held up for Kansas City, wanted to be in a city and got in there. So you so you end up in Kansas City. How's that like uh, going to the police academy? How is that a boot camp scenario? Uh, is it a gentleman's course? Is it you go home in the afternoon? Are you staying in barracks? How does that all work? Yeah, they had just moved the police academy into a local community college, I think for budgetary reasons. They had their own academy in its own standalone campus where they controlled all aspects of it. And for whatever reason, which I'm sure is budgetary, um, they abandoned that. So we're in a community college. Um, combination of classroom, not quite boot camp, plus you're going home to your own apartment every night. They, uh, six months, uh, PT every day, and something that I think law enforcement has really lost sight of, like the neck restraint, the carotid restraint. Mm -hmm. We worked on that every single day for six months. Like nobody that I ever worked with ever hurt anybody by misapplication of the neck restraint. And they knew they, they knew that it was potentially lethal. And if there was one thing they were going to do, we we're going to be in condition, relatively speaking, not seal condition, but in condition. But we weren't going to hurt anybody given putting a neck restraint on them. We worked on that every day for six months. Yeah, it's a, just a horrible thing to see happening right now with law enforcement. I mean, I talk to a lot of police officers around the country, and in most places right now, you cannot use a neck restraint. It's considered lethal force, and you 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 cannot use it. Right. Um, and as anybody that knows anything, it is absolutely the best way to get someone under control that's out of control without hurting them. And if somebody had to restrain my wife or my daughter, I would beg that they please use a neck restraint because they'll be fine. Uh, so it's it's great to hear that at some point in time you were training that way and you did it every day so you yeah. learn how effective it is. You also learn what to be careful of. Right. So yeah, that, that makes sense. Like one, one, one cop and I, um, we had to corral this gorilla uh, and just, you know, Caucasian just for the record. But this monstrous dude at the mental hospital, which means like normally somebody's as nuts and big as that, once you corral them, you take them to the mental hospital. So when the mental hospital <laughs> calls you to get somebody out of there, you know you got a problem. If we wouldn't have been able to choke that guy out, with the proper carotid restraint, I don't know how we'd have got him out of there without shooting him. Mm -hmm. Like, and we got him out out of there completely unharmed. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a horrible escalation to go from. Oh, this guy's a problem, and now I have to shoot him because right, I don't right. know what else to do, or I'm not allowed to do anything else. That escalation from this guy's going to be perfect, literally perfectly fine, to now he's dead because I didn't have, I wasn't authorized to use the tools that I should be authorized to use and should be trained properly. Uh, that's awful. 
so it's a six month school. Six month academy in a community college, um, trying to maintain quasi military discipline, which most law enforcement kind of quasi. And it was it was yeah it was a good classroom working out occasionally a couple of times a week going to the range. And uh, like when you're when you're saying classroom is it like four or five hours of classroom a day you learn about the laws you learn about what you can and cannot do yeah that um, kind of stuff combination con- di- constitutional law some un- understanding probable cause uh, administrative uh, rules and regulations that we're gonna have to know just to, to get by on the street you know I can remember the first time <laughs> the standard report form was a form 189 and so they uh, they say we're going to learn how to fill out a form 189. I remember thinking like I got to remember 189 forms. <laughs> <laughs> I was relieved <laughs> that I didn't have to memorize 189 forms. <laughs> so did you feel pretty good? Did you feel f- pretty prepared when you ended up? You know, you get your badge, you go to the street. How uh, did you feel like you were pretty prepared for it? Well, uh, I felt like I was. <laughs> Certainly did. Uh, there were a couple things. Uh, that took getting used to. Like initially, I was so nervous, my braking officer was scared to let me drive. And then, uh, you know, the complexity of being on patrol, listening to the radio, and actually being on patrol. Most initially, you can't do both. Mm-hmm. So if you're really paying attention to your environment, if you're looking around, if you're listening, you're not going to hear the radio. Yeah. And finally, somebody's going to come by and say, "We've been calling you for 20 minutes." But then, and then you just keep keep doing it every day, every day, every day, and then suddenly something clicks, and you're pulling in all the information, and you're dialed in. So you have a break-in officer, is that the term you used? Yeah, yeah, for two months, um, they, you know, they want to see whether or not they're going to turn you loose. Kansas City at the time ran one-man car patrols, so when you got cut loose off break-in, you were riding around by yourself, mm-hmm. um, which is for a variety of reasons, actually I'm hearing now, really uh, good patrol strategy. Why is that? What I just heard recently, uh, unsourced, um, that a, a, a male police officer is less likely to overreact to a challenge if he's by himself. Hmm. And if there's two males there, two male police officers at the initial challenge you're a little more likely to overreact because there's another male there that you're afraid of losing face in front of. Uh, now, I don't know how true that is. It makes sense to me for a variety of reasons. There's there's some more complexity to it. You know, I held off before talking to you about the different people you've had on. Um, Huberman, I'm a huge Andrew yeah. Huberman fan. Yeah, and I saw you had you had him in. I think uh, he's brilliant. He's a brilliant, dude. I happen I I had the good fortune to have lunch with him one day. And um, so I'm very much into the neuroscience aspects these days. And on one of his podcasts, he was talking about, again, separating out the problems with law enforcement. And it happened to be a podcast on love and relationships, I think. And as I recall, he was talking about uh, the basic four neurochemical hormones that, that drive us. And as I recall, it's primarily testosterone, serotonin, oxytocin, serotonin. And he said, if you're essentially a testosterone type, 
you're more likely to see things as a challenge. So let's get out of race and get into type. You got a testosterone-driven cop stopping a testosterone-driven male, and they're both going to see almost everything that happens as a challenge. Mm. You can expect that to turn into a downward spiral absent better training. It's got nothing to do with race. The dynamic that I thought you were going to say is, if I'm pulling you over and I'm by myself, well, I'm by myself, so I better de-escalate, right? I better be thinking. another point, yeah. Whereas if I'm with Echo and he's my partner and you start getting mouthy, well, you know, we're going to kick your ass. I feel more confident, more just like in a bar, right? Exactly. The guy that's in the bar that's by himself, he's not causing any problems. It's the guy that's with three of his friends that all of a sudden he's getting mouthy. <laughs> right. No, that's yeah, exactly right. And, and most police departments are running... Um, two-man patrols, yeah. two-person patrols. Yeah, it's weird for me because in my background in the SEAL teams, you, if any possible way, you have a buddy with you. As a matter of fact, if you don't have a buddy with you, you're kind of getting in trouble. Right. So you're always, because you, know, you, you can't watch your back. You, know, you, you just can't. Right. So you always have someone with you. So I've always thought to myself, man, if I was a police officer, I'd really like to have a partner. Um. Well, you're trained too. I mean, you're trained to not let your your negative emotions get out get out of control. Yeah, uh, I would definitely. You know, any this is the same thing in the SEAL teams. I mean, you got to learn to de-escalate things, and, and just being in a leadership position, you got to learn to de-escalate things because someone's comes in and they're mad about something, and if you're in a leadership position and you, all you do is go back at them, you see see they you know boss, this plan sucks, and you think, oh, you're challenging me right. instead of saying, oh, well, what what sucks about the plan? Do you want to make some adjustments to it? Like, that's what you do. That's how you de-escalate it. You don't say, well, you don't understand the whole problem. How dare you? So, right, yeah. Uh, yeah, that takes some training. So that takes some, uh, some mental gymnastics to get to a point where you can do that. Um, so now you're out there in Kansas City a right. couple months. Was there any moment where you felt like, like oh, I messed up? Or, or did you ever feel like, okay, now I'm a cop? You know what I'm saying? No, I loved it. My uh-huh. first year there, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I was in a commercial area, you know, a fair amount of street life, um, a little more fast-paced, and that suited me. I'm, I'm not a real meticulous, super organized, super patient. By uh, nature or nurture, I'm not sure which, but neither one. So my first year, I had a, I had a ball. I mean, I had a ball. I mean, I was putting bad guys in jail. You know, I really loved it. I can even remember um, my parents came to visit me one time, and we we met at the. Uh, they came by the precinct uh, towards the end of my shift, and I was told they were there. So we drove up, and my mom said when she saw me get out of the car, she said the way you moved when you got out of the car, I saw a cop get out of that car. Um, so then after I was there for a year, they switched me to a residential area, which is a different kind of work. You know, you're not, you're not making, locking up multiple guys in a night. Um, you're looking for residential burglars. It's much more painstaking, meticulous patient work. And so I went from an area that I just loved to an area that I just wasn't, I wasn't built for. And I, and I started getting bored while I was there. Is that when you started looking for something else to do? Well, I, you know, 
I don't know that I looked so much for something else to do. Um, I was gonna, I was planning on, I wanted to become a member of the SWAT team. And it took three years to get on the SWAT team. So I'm, I'm there, you know, two-ish years. And the guys, I, I knew most of the guys that were on the SWAT team. And they said, well, you know, put in for the selection process. You know, just go through it. If you put in, then the commanders, captains, and sergeants are going to get to know that you're interested. They're going to keep an eye on you. Then next time around, you got a better shot. So, all right, cool. So I, I put in for the selection process, ended up number one on the list. Number one. No shocked everybody. So the, the captains went to the lieutenant colonel and said, let's waive the three-year rule on number one guy here. Isn't going to have three years for ten more months. And Lieutenant Colonel said, I don't care. <laughs> rules are rules. We're not, we're not waiving them. So I'm in a precinct I'm bored by. They're, they're taking everybody on the list under me one at a time. And there was even the discussion of the possibility that if they took everybody, they still wouldn't take me. They'd be a whole new selection process. So I'm a little annoyed by this. And that my father says... Um, what you think about federal? I'm like, I'm happy in Kansas City. So he introduces me to this guy with the Secret Service. And I talked to this guy, and uh, he says, you know, I've traveled all over the world with the Secret Service. And I remember thinking, somebody paid you <laughs> and paid for your flights and paid for your hotel to go all over the world? Like, I'm from Iowa. <laughs> like, I, you know, I'd seen Canada from a distance. That was the extent of my international travel. So I'm like, that sounds cool. And so I didn't know one federal agency from another. No idea. Secret Service, I would go down there. We're not hiring. Not hiring. So I see an article in a newspaper, uh, FBI's first billion-dollar budget. I knew enough about budgets that I thought, it's got to be salaries, they got to be hiring. I went down, I put in, it was the first of a three-year hiring push, and uh, and I got in. And just like that, so how long is it between when you get accepted and when you're going to the FBI Academy? Yeah, well, October 31st, I'd had three years on the police department, and I would have gone to the SWAT team. The Bureau hired me on October 15th. <laughs> And I remember, you know, I'm a, I'm a dumb 20-something-year-old. I put in for the Bureau. And I remember literally telling people, you know, whoever, whoever offers me a position first. <laughs> SWAT team comes, I'm going with the SWAT team. The Bureau comes, I'm going with the Bureau. And then they kept uh, the police department had had a, the chief at the time hated the FBI with a passion hated the FBI. So they had a rule that if you left the police department, the only job you couldn't come back from was if you became an FBI agent. Now you go take a job as a dog catcher, they take you back. You go, you go take a job, you know, think of something, a hairdresser, you know, I don't, I don't know what, but the only job, and in my exit interview, they, they, they literally told me, they said, you understand you can never come back if you join the bureau. Like, well, that's not my intention to come back. But so consequently, they had to, I had to keep my application a secret till it was in the final stages. Uh -huh. They couldn't go interview any of my commanders uh, 
until just they were sure that they were going to hire me at the last minute. And, you know, that led, I was still a mouthy 20-something, so that led to a couple of problems as I was leaving the police department. <laughs> What's the beef? Where's the beef? Did this guy have a specific beef with the FBI? Was it like a case where he, the feds came in, like <laughs> straight out of a movie? He had um, jurisdiction, been, right? Been seen talking on the street with ladies of the evening. And that... Uh, a couple of bureau guys spotted him on the street with these ladies of the evening on the way to a meeting. <laughs> and it made it back to the city council because the agents were wondering whether or not they could trust the guy. And they said, you know, I don't, I don't work with this guy. And then he, he went on to, like the FBI, this is how bad it got under this guy. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the FBI National Academy. Yeah, but if you yep. get if you get sent to the National Academy, the bureau pays all your expenses, pays pays for your flights. Mm -hmm. Like, doesn't cost an agency a dime to send somebody to the National Academy, and it's a stepping stone in a lot of police departments to become becoming chief for the next promotion. It's a big deal. Yeah, I, and, I, I spoke at the last FBI National Academy uh, meeting. Right. Yeah, it was awesome. So I get there in the FBI Academy, you know, uh, October fifteenth. And they start talking about how they pay all expenses for cops. <laughs> and I'm thinking, nobody from Kansas City has come here in 10 years. It, it, it can't be that it's free. Like, nah, it's free. That's, that's how much this guy hated the FBI. Wow. So you get picked up for the FBI. Uh, you show up to the academy. How's the academy? Yeah, it was good. Um, you know, running, shooting, mostly academic. Mm-hmm. The um, uh, the physical aspects of it were not super challenging. You could, if uh, it would help you at the time, you could be in no condition at all, and they'd whip you into shape. Mm -hmm. They ended up having um, problems with that later on, and so you, now you can't get in unless you're in at least a minimal physical condition. Got it. But you you could come in and, and be fat, completely out of shape. If if you put in the effort, you'd you'd meet the minimums. And they weren't huge. Like, FBI agents are not wrestling people to the ground on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So they want you to be physically capable, but, you know, it was more rigorous in a police department because you you, know, you might get into a wrestling match with somebody every day. And the Bureau's uh, tactics is to outman, outgun the bad guys so that physical confrontations are unnecessary. So they want you to be able to handle yourself, but it, it's not that big of a deal. They really want you, they want you to do the classroom work they want you to be able to shoot well. My shooting improved significantly from when I was there, and it was it was you know it was a good solid sixteen weeks. It was transformative. How are you looking at? Because you're a you're a cop coming off the mean streets, and how are you looking at the college kids? Is yeah, there is was, there like uh, fun with that <laughs> <laughs> with that interaction? Yeah, I was I was a lot more um, harsh, so to speak, more aggressive, more blunt than the vast majority of them were. Um, I I was, and they come from all walks of life, and they're going to turn them into agents. But I was, you know, I was a, I was a street cop. What, what, what percentage of people are previous cops rolling in there? Pretty small, pretty small. They they uh, at the time they hired in five categories. I was cops are in the modified category, which is all others. Like you're not a lawyer, you're not an accountant, you're not a scientist, you're not a female, you're not a minority. 
Uh, you're not any other. You're not a language. You know, you don't. You're not already fluent. Got it. So everybody else goes into large categories, modified, and you know, it's a more competitive. Theoretically, it's just more more people there. Um, and I was modified, so not that many cops. Was there any? Uh, did you have any challenges when you were there? Or is anything hard for you? No, I don't think so. Not nothing. Nothing there. Then I mean, I could. I was already in decent condition. Took care of myself pretty well. I could study when I felt like it, and I already knew how to shoot. Do people get kicked out of the academy? Like, what percentage of people make it through? I mean, they got a good screening prog- pro- uh, program, so I'm sure it's not that many. Nah, yeah, it's well, it's even it's even better now. Um, uh, and no, not that many did. Not not that many did. Like, if if you got if you got caught lying about anything, you should you should be shown the door. Um, any 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 cheating should be shown the door. If you that would they had a problem with physical conditioning because they tried to they would enforce the physical physical conditioning rules in the academy, but then not once you join were actually in a field office as an agent. And somebody brought up, well, if if legally you're full FBI agents from the moment you walk in the door, you shouldn't get fired in, from the academy on something you won't get fired from if you're in a field office. And you should be you shouldn't be fat and out of shape in a field office. They just weren't firing people for that. Mm-hmm. So they then they then they just raised the physical minimums to get in the door. Are you when you're there, so is is everyone getting trained just to be an agent? Yeah. And is there do you go to specialty training after that? So if I'm an accountant and they think I'm gonna be looking at tax fraud do I go there? I become an agent, and then I go to an advanced school to be, uh, you know, a tax fraud guy. Pretty much exactly, yeah. The, the theory then, and I think it still holds pretty true now. Like be an FBI agent first, specialize afterwards. We got to make sure that you understand how to how to be a generalist mm-hmm. before you, you know, you follow your bliss for lack lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Like somebody's breaking a law. <laughs> on every cool thing you could think of. Like if you were into collecting postage stamps, somebody's engaged in an active criminal enterprise making money from counterfeit <laughs> postage. I get a matter. So the cool thing about the FBI is that ultimately, if you take your time, you can have the best time investigating crimes around stuff you're really interested in. <laughs> But uh, if I speak Spanish or I speak uh, Russian, are they going to throw me into an assignment where this is my main gig as soon as I get done? Spanish guys for a while, everybody had to, if you got hired in the Spanish program, everybody was going to have to do a stint in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. Those were the only ones at the time. Puerto Rico's bureau's got its hands full in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is doesn't know if it wants to be a state or a commonwealth, you know, infrastructure problems. Uh, on the one hand, still, uh, you know, back in my time in the Bureau, still a couple of active groups that engaging in violence for independence. Um, so this just this crazy combination of very difficult things to work in Puerto Rico. So if you're... Uh, Spanish speaker, you're going to do time in Puerto Rico. That was the only language. So as a normal agent, 
what would for you for instance do you get any uh, any say in where you're going and what you're getting assigned to no they're just going to give you what they're going to give not you not then at then the bureau's uh, policy which made was made complete sense like starting your life over as an FBI agent is a big jump and the easiest way effectively is to go in a witness security program it's a complete new identity no ties to your old identity at all because it's the easiest way to become a, an FBI agent like nobody nobody you're not around people you went to high school with you're not around your neighbors you're not not even around family <laughs> oh so you're saying not literally like it's witness protection, but they take you it's and they're not going to send you back to sec. where you're from. Right. They're going right. to send you to some other city so you don't have to run into the people you used to know. You're going to be. Right. You, it's a new life. That was back then. Now, the problem with that, it was very expensive. To I'm, I'm in Kansas City. They send me to Pittsburgh for two years. They get me ready to go into one of the major offices. Is this what they actually did with you? Yeah. So this is your first assignment is Pittsburgh. Two years in Pittsburgh. You get some kind of a special assignment, like you're gonna be working gang, you're gonna be working drug, you're gonna be, or are you just working. Um, you, most offices start you out working, working applicants, because you got to get used to laying the credentials on somebody in a low stress environment. So if you're doing a background investigation, you're walking into a bank because somebody that used to work in a bank wants to become an agent or something else. Where the background's required. Jeez, that's not the rush you were looking for, was it? <laughs> it's a little slow to start out with, but you know, the first couple of times, you know, these crazy things where you hold your your creds up in front of somebody, yeah, you get used to that. And but uh, or if you're going into a bank to lock somebody up, that's a whole different. So yeah. they they warm you up and applicants, and then depend upon where you are, where you're going to get assigned to. I initially get assigned to foreign counterintelligence (FCI) working spies, which is not for me. Again, that's slow, meticulous work. And so I, within the rules, now I'm scheming on how to get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you get there, you get assigned this foreign counterintelligence. You already know this is really not your gig. Well, so what's your scam? What do you run? How do you try and maneuver? Well, as it turns out, the guy who's ahead of the office his kid is getting ready to go to college in Iowa State. So I'm not that far from out of Iowa State. I'm like, look, you know, I'll connect you with some friends. You know, we'll, we'll help make sure your landing is, is a soft landing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I help look out for his kid. Building some relationships. Yeah. Relationship building. <laughs> and so then he initially, I want to go to the drug squad, drug and organized crime. Mm-hmm. The different choices, they got a bank robbery squad, Great squad. I got no shot at the bank robbery squad. Drug and organized crime or white collar. So I'm like, let me do the drugs and organized crime. This guy, I'm told he's going to send me to drug and organized crime. And then when the transfer comes through, I'm on surveillance. Which ended up being a great thing. It was better than FCI. Uh, But then, you you know, that assignment played into where I ended up in New York and surveillance is you get experiment with stuff and um, in all the field divisions surveillance is a light undercover that you got you got a name different last name you got the ID you got credit cards in the event that you got a somebody you're following whether it's a drug dealer or a spy gets on a plane you got to go with them you got to be able to pay for it you know you, you got to be able to go so I got a chance to do some 
undercover work there also because then they're they're borrowing the guys in the surveillance teams. You've already got an undercover backstop. You go out and buy, do drug buys. And that's when I found out to be an undercover is to lie for a living. And it didn't fit me, didn't suit me. Some some people, it's fine. It works for you. But lying for a living didn't work for me. <laughs> and undercover sounds sexy. Everybody wants to do undercover. I mean, it sounds sexy. I want to get out there. I want to buy drugs. You know, I want to go into organized crime. I want to do all this stuff. And until you try it, something that sounds sexy, you don't really know if it's for you. So I got a chance to try it a couple of, a few times in uh, in Pittsburgh, and I just realized it just wasn't for me. I had uh, two friends. One of them went to the FBI, the or the, was trying to go from the SEAL teams to the FBI. The other one was going to another agency inside the government, and they both went to the screening. And the guy that was going to the FBI comes back. He's God. I took the freaking lie detector test. That thing was crazy. You know, as soon as they at, they said, oh, pick a number between one and five and tell us, you know, don't tell us the number when we ask you if it's the number. And he goes, okay. And so he's, you know, thinking of three. And they go, is it one? And he goes, no. And the, the, the thing's all flat. He goes, is it two? And he goes, no. And as soon as he says that, he goes, the thing starts going wild. Is it three? He said, it's <laughs> off. He goes, they knew exactly because I told him that. And and he was one of those guys that, like he just wasn't comfortable lying and it just it just called him out. Now my other friend who went to another agency, he comes back from his interview, and he goes, "Yeah, I took that lie detector test." And I go, "How how was that?" He goes, "I flat lied it." <laughs> <laughs> and the the he said he just yeah he just I, that thing couldn't he goes I just I just blew through it. And here's the thing, I actually don't know if he's lying, because he lied a lot, this guy. You know, <laughs> he was one of those guys that told like small small lies all the time. You know, right, he's talking right, to right. a girl, he's telling a crazy story, he's talking to some other dude, he's telling some crazy, even when he's talking to you, you know you know those kind of friends that you have where they, you know they're kind of lying about stuff, like, you know, and you're good with it, it's just white lies, but it's all the time. He was one of those guys, and yeah. so I kind of believed him when he told me he flatlined the thing. He probably, yeah. But <laughs> he, he may have been even lying about that, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> but that idea, you know, for me, I'm like you. Like, I don't want to be, I, I don't like to have like, I don't like to have to cover, like lie about stuff and make stuff up and it just doesn't sit well with me. I wouldn't be a good undercover guy. Uh, so how long did you have to do that for? Uh, I was, I worked surveillance for about a year and a half. A year and a half. Now, at, a lot of times Pittsburgh. you're just straight up sitting in like the plumbing van on the corner just about, with a camera, yeah. taking yeah. pictures. That's what you're doing. Yeah, or even if even if you're in a chase vehicle where you're following them. Like they're, they're moving for of an eight, ten hour shift. They're moving for an hour max. Mm-hmm. So you're sitting around no matter what. So this is still not what you came in to do. <laughs> no, nah, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. You know, I'm and I'm I'm biding my time in Pittsburgh at the time because I knew that you know I'm going to be out of there soon. What is it? A two year assignments that you guys Rough, get? Roughly at the time, it was roughly two years before they move you on to one of the top offices. They called it the top twelve at the time, but everybody was going to New York at the time. Um, Every FBI agent, everyone in the country got paid the same amount of money. If you were if you're an agent in Kansas City, if you're an agent in my hometown, Mount Pleasant, Iowa, you got paid the exact same amount of money somebody in New York got paid. Mm. So consequently, there were people in New York who were quitting right and left. They were having trouble staffing the office. And they said, look, you're, you're going to New York. I mean, the orders aren't here yet, but nine out of 10 of you coming out of this class, you guys are all gonna end up in New York. 
So you're going. Don't be shocked when your orders for New York come through. So I'm in Pittsburgh. I'm waiting for the orders to New York to come through. And so what year is this that you finally get orders to New York? 1985. 1985. The day my son Brandon was born was the exact same day I got my orders to New York were printed. You roll up to New York, and what, what, what do you get assigned when you get up there? I catch a break. Um, since I got surveillance time and since I've been a cop, the Joint Terrorist Task Force, the surveillance team dedicated to them, uh, needed, needed bodies, and I, because of my surveillance time, I got put right on. So that was that was a huge break for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, it was I saved a lot of money. Didn't have to pay for suits and dry cleaning. That's a you know the cost of living is now increased, so my living standard is taking a step back. And then the second thing was at the time the surveillance teams were the only guys that took cars home, surveillance and SWAT took cars home. And so this takes care of all my commuting expenses, which is another significant chunk of cash. So, and then I'm with New York City cops as partners, a joint terrorist task force, surveillance team. But the coolest thing of it was, we were the only surveillance team in New York that actually got out on the street with people, went into the subway. You had to be prepared to end up anywhere in New York City at one o'clock in the morning toughest neighborhood by yourself no comms with anybody like totally on your own and you develop you know it's a cha- in new york very dangerous time 19 mid to late 80s oh, yeah. very dangerous yeah so if you're if you're into this job like this is great this is a disney world every day like how do you end up in the south bronx and the bad guys leave you alone i remember the first time i'm going through bed at about one o'clock in the morning and we, you know, we could use pay phones. You know, you had special number. You could use a pay phone, not cost you. I called some friends of mine in Iowa to say, guess where I am at right now? <laughs> I am in Bed-Stuy in a drug neighborhood hanging out. <laughs> now, you're, you said you were the counter-terrorist team. Is that right? Yeah. Well, Joint Terrorist Task Force. Joint which Terrorist was, Task Force. Yeah. You know, I think... I, I know there's some terms of art versus anti-terrorist versus counter-terrorist. I think we're counter-terrorist. And so who are you tracking? How are you ending up in, you know, some drug-infested part of the city? Who are you tracking? It was, it was a very cool transition time. The terrorist task force started out mostly all domestic terrorism and had every ethnic group had a terrorist group. Puerto Ricans uh, had the FLIN, the Macheteros, Jewish... JDL, Bombers, um, Black Panthers had turned into the Black Liberation Army, and the most dangerous one of all, the May 19th Communist Organization, which was mostly white female lesbians. And they were the smartest, the most organized, the most effective of all the groups. Like they, we had more respect for their organization and and the way they, and at one point in time, domestically, all the groups got together, because it's like a professional association where you have conferences. <laughs> they know, they they hang out together, they know each other. And they did a couple of joint operations, 
And on May 19th, we're so disappointed in the organization of the other groups that they finally said, you guys go on your own. <laughs> so the first, first generation of the terrorist task force put them all in jail. I mean, knocked them out. They, they, you know, they won awards right and left. Books were written about all the cases they made. So I get there, and I join that just as that's going away, and simultaneously just as the Islamic radicals are starting to come to town. Like I get there just a couple of years before the first World Trade Center bombing, and, and we're seeing a shift. But the bizarre part of it was no one believed this. No one believed no you. one no one no one FBI headquarters, New York City Police Department, they, they were actually in the process of disbanding the terrorist task force when the first World Trade Center bombing occurred in ninety three. Some of my supervisors, uh, a, a deputy chief famously said to one of my supervisors, You're telling me about pink elephants walking down Broadway because they felt there was no terrorism in the United States because none of the incidents were, were occurring on American soil. And we had all been reassigned to gang crimes. Gang crimes was, was a really big thing at the time. And they took us, they disbanded the terrorist task force and they re, reassigned so, us all so, the gang So cases. you're there, they disband this terrorist task force after they kind of broke a bunch of these domestic terrorist groups up. Right. They say, yeah, there's no more threat. Were you guys already saying, hey, no, there's an Islamic extremist threat, or were you not quite there yet? We weren't, we weren't quite there yet. We sensed something was going on, and so we took all our terrorist cases and made them gang cases because they qualified as gang cases. <laughs> okay, so you guys are now part of this gang task force. We're working gang crimes. You know, the, the different groups, whether, where the, wherever they had originated from, at the different time, at the time, there were a couple of uh, bank robbery crews that were, they realized if we call where we hang out a mosque, then we just pulled another layer of the First Amendment over us. And it's that much harder to get to get at us. So they said, you know, criminals, and, and every religion has legitimate um, practitioners. So it's not the legitimate practitioner's fault that the criminals changed the name of the building they hang out in to a mosque. And that, that's what a bunch of them did. And, and we went from literally the first World Trade Center bombing, a couple of guys that were investigating some bank robberies were trying to get a wire in a building that the bank robbers said was a mosque, and the prosecutors wouldn't touch it. They're like, we are not, we don't care what you find. We are not putting a wire in a church. And then the Trade Center happened, and they turned right back around. And with all the probable cause we'd previously established, we got the wires that we needed right after the first Trade Center bombing. So, what was your? So, were you in that gang task force doing surveillance when the first uh, World Trade Center attack happened? I had been. I had shifted from surveillance to what we call going inside, being part of the investigative squad. So, I was no longer doing light cover, and I had been doing um, investigations. Uh, overtly for probably about two years when a first trade center bombing happened. How, how, uh, how surprised were we on that first World Trade Center bombing? I know, yeah, completely. Um, w there were some cases that we had had working. We just 
we didn't imagine we, we we didn't have our arms around the guys that did the bombing we actually had we were looking real hard at a, a particular group that engaged in a test blast of the trade center explosive they were tricked into the test blast they didn't even know what was going on the opsec of the guys that hit the first trade center was really really good and uh ramsey youssef master mine the first trade center bombing who is in fact Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's nephew, 9-11 mastermind. Mm-hmm. His nephew, Ramsey Youssef, did the first, he came to town, he brought the plans with him, he found a bunch of disorganized guys, you know, nobody, nobody really appreciated what he was, how organized he was. He pulled the whole thing together and left New York shortly before the bomb went off. And we got lucky on that bombing. I mean, yeah. the amount of damage yeah, that that bomb yeah. could have done. Ridiculous. Ridiculously lucky. And their intention was, first time, was to take the tower down. Yeah. They placed the bomb in a position to try to drop one tower into the next. And when Ramsey came back, when we brought him back, collectively, I'm told that they flew by the Trade Center, and he told the guys in a plane, next time we're taking it down. How did this impact your job? So once this happens, is it like full focus? Now you realize you gotta you gotta pay the the FBI needs to pay attention to the Islamic extremists. Yeah, we well we got we got on them in a hurry. Um, we we'd been working different aspects of the group for about five years, and everything they did there was tremendous restrictions on terrorist investigations because they saw it as a political investigation. So the oversight, like we had to re-justify the cases every six months. And if, you had, if they hadn't committed a crime or we hadn't turned up a crime in that six-month time frame, the investigation just got shut down. You couldn't pursue it. So, but consequently, we had little bits and pieces all along that when they hit the Trade Center, we could go back to the previous cases. Well, here's a piece here, here's a piece here, here's a piece here. And we now saw, now saw how, the, how the group had uh, coalesced in, in the United States by not breaking a law in their own way. For example, one guy, um, one of the ringleaders got stopped in a car, pulled over in a car, stopped, trunk load of weapons. One of, the, one of the passengers in a car had a federal firearms license. It had dealer tags on the car. Wasn't the right, the reason it got stopped was because the tags didn't match the car. They had a legitimate reason for having a dealer tags. De- dealer license plate you can put on any car you want driving around. You're, you're golden. So legitimate car stop, Within the laws of the United States, no reason to take anybody to jail. When we start backtracking, we see same guys in a car with a bunch of weapons on the way to a firing range. So we, when, when we could bring all the pieces together, it all came together pretty fast. At what point did you get interested or start to get involved in negotiation? Yeah, I had... Uh, I had I would say it would be fair to say utterly no interest in being a hostage negotiator when I first joined the bureau. I was on a SWAT team in Pittsburgh. I got to New York. I tried out for HRT. Uh, the, the, I was ridiculously underprepared when I tried out for HRT. I was just like sad. But um, knew that I could do it if I worked at it. You know, you can't train 
couple of weekends. You got to you got to train your your tail off for a year. It's got to become a lifestyle. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I don't have to tell you that. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what it is. It's a lifestyle. So I tried out for HRT and um, failed miserably, and then started working out again and re-injured my knee. Had my knee put back together for the second time, and then I thought, all right, so. And as probably as you well know, there's a shelf life to special <laughs> operations, special forces. And you were expired. <laughs> you, you're going to expire at some point in time. You know, something's going to break too many times, and you're not going to be able to do it anymore. Uh, so then I thought, all right, so we got negotiators. I've seen these guys out there. They're there all the time. Crisis response. I'll be a negotiator because crisis requires a decision somebody's got to decide what to do and decide now. And I wanted to stay in that game and do it. So I thought, I'd, I, thought I would angle myself towards a negotiation team and had to jump through some hoops but eventually made it. So this is, what year is this that you, that you make it to a negotiation team? I got trained in 92. 92. 19, last century. <laughs> 1992. Before cell phones. And and so this is inside the FBI. There's a detachment of negotiators. Is that the way it's set up? You can do it as an additional duty. Like when you're a street agent, there's something in you. There's four basic additional assignments. Something in you is going to resonate with one of those four. You can be an undercover. You could be a negotiator. You could be in SWAT. You could be in a bomb tech. Each one of those is a little bit different breed of cat. Mm-hmm. And something in you is really going to line up with one of those things. And so. SWAT was out for you. Yeah, SWAT's out because of the knee. And I was interested in negotiation. And what you do if if they take you on the team, then they send you to Quantico for two weeks to get that training. There's three schools in the world that every hostage negotiator wants to go to. You want to go to the Bureau School. You want to go to London Matt Scotland Yard. And then you're either going to want to go down to Australia or you're going to want to go to Canada because both of those run great great courses. So the bureau the bureau's course, as opposed to the Scotland Yard's course, the bureau's course will turn you into the best hostage negotiator you could be. Scotland Yard turn you into a great team player, which I had no idea was there was a difference then, but there's a huge difference. So I went to the bureau school and learned how to negotiate. So you're this is when you're still part of the gang task force. Right. You get this collateral duty right. as a negotiator. So if something was to pop up where a negotiator was needed, they'd call you'd you'd get brought in. Right. Whereas some other guy that became a bomb tech, all of a sudden there's a bomb, they find a pipe bomb somewhere, they needed someone to go work on that, they call one of the bomb tech guys that's been to that school. Exactly. And so forth. Okay, so you've been trained now. Once you've been trained in that, did you start to realize this is kind of something that you're good at? Did you realize it was something you were more interested in than you thought you would be? Well, I had volunteered on a suicide hotline before I went to the negotiation training. Wait, you volunteered on a what? Suicide hotline. Okay, got it. That was the hoop I had to jump through. Because I, I went to the head of the negotiation team in New York. said, I want to be a hostage negotiator. And Oh, this is in the book, the yeah, woman that you that, yeah, that said. turned me down. Yeah. And so I volunteered on a hotline. So then when I get to the Bureau's negotiation school and they're playing tapes, I say to myself, I've been doing this for a year and a half. I just didn't have a SWAT team outside. So I already felt that it was something that I was going to be good at and enjoyed. 
while I was there. How was that learning curve at the suicide hotline? Yeah, it's really counterintuitive. Um, I had, like, it's an, it's an invisible skill. It's ridiculously effective, and it's completely invisible. And you go to training for that? Did they train you to be? At the work? hotline? Yeah. Not only do they train you, but at the, at the beginning of the, the training, they give you a piece of paper with 10, 10 possible statements that somebody in a hotline might make. So write down what you think a good response is. They're going to give you back this piece of paper at the end of the training. They gave me back the piece of paper at the end of the training. Now, I, I write like, it looks like I write with my feet. My handwriting is very distinctive. Like, there's no way you can fake my handwriting. So they hand me this piece of paper, and I know that's my handwriting. And I remember thinking, like, what moron wrote those responses? That was, that was how far they take you in two months, and you don't, you don't even know it. What, what's an example of what? You what into you what you instinctively might think you should say to what you actually should say. Um. So and uh, one one call that I did get this guy calls in and says, "Look, look, I you know I just I'm just you know I'm trying to put a lid on this night. I'm trying to put a lid on this night." Now before training, I might have said, "Have you tried watching some TV? Uh, have you tried working out? Like when I'm really stressed." I know if I go get a good workout, it clears my head. Or have you tried meditation? Like jumping right in mm-hmm. to problem solving. That is the wrong way to do it. That is That will prolong the situation. Like the speed accelerator, which is neuroscience-based, I didn't know at the time, is to deactivate the negatives by calling them out. So I just say to this guy, because I've been taught to just like call out what you're hearing. So I go, he sounded frantic. So I said, sound frantic. And immediately his voice started coming down several notches. Instantaneously. And that, that tiny, like people listening to that conversation would be like, what he, the guy, what he just said seems unhelpful. Mm-hmm. However, if I'm watching the person that he said it to, instantaneously came down. And since you don't see examples of that in real life or on the movies or TV, on the movies or TV, the guy'd say, look, have you tried working out? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then on the movies or TV, they'll depict it as the, guy, as the other person saying like, wow, that's a great idea. <laughs> I'll do that. So what's psychologically going through my head when I tell you I want to put a cap on this night, I got to put a cap on this night, and you say, you say back to me, you sound like you're frantic. What's going through my head that's making me de-escalate? Right, so um, it's probably a neurochemical reaction. There's a, there's, and from listening to Huberman and, and others, I'm fascinated by what, finding the science behind it. It's been duplicated in a number of experiments that if I put you in an fMRI where I can watch the electricity moving around in your brain and I show you a picture that induces some sort of negative thought and what the picture is, it doesn't matter. The experiment's been done a number of times. They might have shown them puppies in the rain, a starving child in Africa, anything that induces a negative thought. And so seeing the picture, they watch areas in your brain light up that either for you or predicted in advance where the negativity in your brain is housed. That bounces around a little bit based on person, but it's essentially 
about three quarters of the amygdala and a couple of other things that are involved. So they watch it light up when you see the picture. Now they just say to you, what are you feeling? Just asking you to label it, call it out, simply call it out. And every time they ask a person to simply identify the negative emotion that they're feeling, the electrical activity in the areas that had lit up start to diminish. Every time, not sometimes, not 75% of the time, every time. Now the amount they diminish changes, which is why I happen to hit the nail on the head with this guy on a hotline, he starts coming down significantly. Sometimes you can call out somebody's negative emotion and there won't be any perceivable response. It doesn't mean it didn't work, it means you just need to do it some more. Mm But it, it happens every time. Now, what triggers it is, is it a neurochemical response? Is it a conscious response? It's probably some sort of neurochemical response. But what we learned in hostage negotiation and in, on the hotline, actually, we, we do this extremely aggressively now in all our business negotiations. Like, you know, I guess some contentious to talk about. I'm going to call you on a, call you on a phone, send you a text, send you an email saying like, yeah, I like what I have to say. It's, you know, this is going to be harsh. This is going to be insulting. And so I, I started in a, in a funny kind of way. I started applying this when I'm running our international kidnap response. I go to an embassy that's kidnapping the Philippines, I think you, you read about earlier. Mm-hmm. I am unwelcome because somebody from Washington, D.C. shows up. The locals in the embassy, the message they get is they're screwing up. You're either screwing up or you're in it inadequate. Somebody from D.C. is not welcome. And I'm walking into a hostile environment every time. And because they were new to it, they didn't know exactly the response. They'd usually be doing something wrong. And I'd walk in, i start pointing out what they were doing wrong. <laughs> and my partner, Chuck Regini, who you, uh, you, who's in the story, whenever we walk into a room, he would start to flinch because he knew that I was getting ready to lay into these guys. And somewhere along the line, I learned to say before I started criticizing him, I'd say, this is going to sound harsh. And then I'd criticize him. <laughs> and they'd be, okay. They'd go from being mad to, you know, it preempted the negativity by letting them know what was coming. And I've seen it, seen it work on a regular basis. Something about it makes it worse. The... You could say, you could probably get away with seeing, saying this uh, in the Navy, in the teams. You could say, you know, Captain, this is going to, I don't want you to think I'm being disrespectful. And you're probably not going to get to say the sentence second, sentence sec, second sentence, or he's going to have shut you off. Mm-hmm. But if instead you said, Captain, I know this is going to sound disrespectful, he'd sit there and listen to you. He'd appreciate being warned. And there's something about that reaction, that tiny little shift that I learned way back on a hotline. So you worked this suicide hotline for a year? I was, I was uh, actively on a line for probably a little over two years, two and a half years. I stayed uh, very involved when, um, when the first trade center kicked off. Then our follow-on case, which was a larger, larger, broader conspiracy on a couple of different groups that were all linked together. Um, through the course of that following year, I just didn't have time to volunteer on a hotline anymore. Mm-hmm. 
So this is how, this is kind of how you get started in this negotiation, learning this skill. Um, and I, I kind of told you this before we started recording. We're going to see all kinds of overlap between what I talk about from a leadership perspective. You know, there's a lot of skills that are transferable. It's like if you're good at baseball, there's a lot of things that are going to transfer over to softball. If you're good at wrestling, there's a lot of things that are going to transfer over to, uh, you know, jujitsu. So there's a lot of stuff that's really, really similar, and, and there's some some differences as well. But this skill of negotiation, as I read through the book, it's evolved a lot in the last 40, 50 years. Right. Um, and it, you know some of the stuff that you talk about in the book, <laughs> you know, hostage negotiation used to mean you know stall them until we get a chance to assault. Like <laughs> that that was what it was. There was a mindset change that you outline in the book uh, that occurred around 1971, October 1971. A guy named George Giff. Am I saying that right? He's a he's a guy that took a took took a plane, took a plane, took hostages on the plane. The plane lands to refuel. The hostages had actually negotiated their own release. But the FBI got frustrated and shoots the engine of the plane. The guy loses his mind, kills the hostages. The FBI gets sued and actually loses the lawsuit. So so all of a sudden they realize they needed to make some adjustments to their the way they're negotiating. Right. Uh, another thing that you kind of detail in the book is 1979, Harvard starts this negotiation project. And they're starting to look at negotiation theory and practice. They're trying to improve it. Uh, a book ends up coming out of that. The book is called Getting to Yes. That was written by Roger Fisher and William Urey, who were also the co-founders of that project. And, and the theory that they had was that, look, the you know people are emotional and they're animalistic and they're unreliable and they're irrational. And you just need to overcome that with, you know, rational, logical, you know, problem-solving mindset, which is, which is actually an idea that doesn't turn out to work so well because it's a lot harder to overcome that irrational, emotional, animalistic human. So those are some of the, uh, those are some of the evolutions that start to take place when in the book that you that you run through um and in fact going to the book here you say you say this about their system was easy to follow and seductive with four basic tenets one separate the person the emotion from the problem two don't get wrapped up in the other side's position what they're asking for but instead focus on their interests why they're asking for it so you can find what they really want three work cooperatively to generate win-win options and four (laughs) (laughs) i'm putting a little tone on those aren't i sorry uh and four establish mutually agreed upon standards for evaluating those possible solutions (laughs) so this is like one of those just detached academic things it was a brilliant rational and profound synthesis of the most advanced game theory and legal thinking of the day for years after that book came out everybody including the fbi and the nypd focused on problem solving approach to bargaining interactions it just seems so modern modern and smart right so that was what was kind of happening 
Then you go on to say halfway across the United States, a pair of professors at the University of Chicago was looking at everything from economics to negotiation from a far different angle. They were economists Amos Tversky, am I saying that right? Tversky, Tversky and psychologist Daniel Kahneman, 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 yeah. And he wrote uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah. Together, the two launched the field of behavioral, behavioral economics, and Kahneman won a Nobel Prize by showing that man is a very irrational beast. Right. Feeling, they discovered, is a form of thinking. As you've seen, when business schools like Harvard's began teaching negotiation in the 1980s, the process was presented as a straightforward economic analysis. It was a period when the world's top academic economists declared that we were all rational actors. That means on both sides. That means considering that both people on both sides are rational. And so it went in negotiation classes, assuming the other side was acting rationally and selfishly, trying to maximize their position. The goal is to figure out how to respond in various scenarios to maximize one's own value. This mentality baffled Kahneman, who for year, from years in psychology knew that, in his words, quote, it is self-evident that people are neither fully rational nor completely selfish and that their tastes are anything but stable, end quote. So there were these two schools going on with negotiation and one of them took this kind of logical approach and the other one realized that you had to deal with these emotional, the emotions was a way of thinking, you're gonna have something you're gonna have to deal with. And you must have realized that on the suicide hotlines as well. Yeah, you know, and I didn't really understand why. All I knew is that taking that approach accelerated things. Just complete acceleration in situations that I thought would have taken hours. And so I just saw, and again, Kahneman and, and doesn't win the Nobel Prize at like 2002-ish. So just saw that it worked, didn't understand why, didn't really care. I, my first issue has always been what works. Mm-hmm. Now, understanding a mechanism is important sometimes to ex- people need to understand a mechanism. Some people need to understand a mechanism. I care about number one, what works. Number two, secondarily, is is it moral? You know, I missionaries and mercenaries. If, mercenaries if it works. Missionaries, if it follows your basic moral code, if it qualifies on both of those, then I'm good. Got it. Uh, now, you go into the book a little bit about how the FBI sort of started to adopt this. You know, the FBI, they, they were deep into that book at one point getting to, yes, that was what they were using. A lot of guys were using that. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, you get Ruby Ridge up in Idaho. You get the the Waco, Texas, right? These things are kind of disaster. These things are actually they are disastrous. Kind of disaster. They're very disastrous. Um, and <laughs> you throw this in the book. I'm going to go to the book here. I mean, have you ever tried to devise a mutually beneficial win-win solution <laughs> with a guy who thinks he's the Messiah? Right. It was becoming alarmingly obvious that getting to yes didn't work with kidnappers. No matter how many agents read the book with highlighters and hands, it failed to improve how we as hostage negotiators approached deal making. There was clearly a breakdown between the book's brilliant theory and everyday law enforcement experience. Why was it that everyone had read this best-selling business book and endorsed it as one of the greatest negotiation texts ever written, and yet so few could follow it successfully? Were we morons? (laughs) Uh, 
1994, fast forward a little bit from the book. And again, I'm reading excerpts for the book. The book is awesome. I mean, we're hitting some wave tops. So just order the book right now so you can get all these details. In 1994, FBI Director Louis Free Louis Free. Louis Free. Louis Free. Announced the form the the formation of the Critical Incident Response Group, right. a blended division that would combine crisis negotiation, crisis management, behavioral sciences, and hostage rescue teams, and reinvent crisis negotiation. The only issue was what techniques were we going to use? And you go on to say what were needed were simply were simple psychological tactics and strategies that worked in the field to calm people down, establish rapport, gain trust, elicit verbalization of needs, and persuade the other guy of our of our empathy. We needed something that was easy to teach, easy to learn, and easy to execute. In the early years, the FBI experimented with both new and old therapeutic techniques developed by the counseling profession. These counseling skills were aimed at developing positive relationships with people by demonstrating an understanding of what they're going through and how they feel about it. It all starts with the universally applicable premise that people want to be understood and accepted. And by the way, again, I, I talked about like leadership. This is exactly what I talk about from a leadership perspective. I mean, if you don't know me at all, I'm absolutely trying to get you to trust me. How do I get you to trust me? I put some trust in you. I listen to what you have to say. You're going to listen to me. Same exact thing here. Back to the book. Listening is the cheapest yet most effective concession we can make to get there. By listening intensely, a negotiator demonstrates empathy and shows a sincere desire to better understand what the other side is experiencing. Exactly why you listen to your subordinates. Exactly why you listen to your peers. Exactly why you listen to your boss. What are you, what are you trying to tell me, boss? Let, let me listen. Right. Um, you know, whenever I get asked the question, you know, my my team's not listening to me. What should I do? Yell louder. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no. You want your team to listen to you. Listen to them. Be yeah. quiet. Listen to them. Hear what they have to say. Uh, you go on to say psychotherapy research shows that when individuals feel listened to, they tend to listen to themselves more carefully and openly evaluate and clarify their own thoughts and feelings. In addition, they tend to become less defensive and oppositional and more willing to listen to other points of view, which gets them to calm, to the calm and logical place where they can be good getting to yes problem solvers. So uh, again, this is one of the things that I am talking about all the time with people. I always say, you know, if, if I'm, if I want you to see something, if I want to, if I know the truth about something, if I've got some great plan and I want you on board with my plan, the best thing I can do is not tell you what the plan is, is let you come up with a plan. Let you, let the truth be revealed to you by you, not, right, right. not by me. Right. That's my goal. And, and you go on to say this whole concept, which you'll learn as the centerpiece of this book is called tactical empathy. This is listening as a martial art, balancing the subtle behaviors of emotional intelligence and assertive skills of influence to gain access to the mind of the other person. Contrary to popular opinion, listening is not a passive activity. It is the most active thing you can do. Once we started developing our new techniques, the negotiating world split into two concurrents, two currents. Negotiation as learned at the country's top school continued down the established road of rational problem solving, while ironically, we meatheads at the FBI began to train our agents in an unproven system based on psychology, counseling, and crisis intervention. While the Ivy League taught math and economics, we became experts in empathy and our way 
worked. So that's how the that's how the shift the shift took place. That's good stuff in that book. What, what book you read from? <laughs> yeah, again? I tell you, dude, it's good. good stuff good. in there. I'm impressed. Uh, yeah. Who, who the hell wrote that? <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. And uh, I'm telling you, I mean, I just I was really uh, really stoked to read it and and got so much out of it. Just seeing you know that whole section right there. I mean, this is what I, I'm talking to people all the time about from a leadership perspective. You know the 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 big difference. The big difference between what, when I talk about leadership and with, if you and I are negotiating, the big difference is as a leader, I don't really care at the end of the day what plan we use. I just want the best plan. So I, 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 you know, if we're gonna attack a target, at the end of the day, I don't care if we attack it from the north or from the south, I just want which one is best. So I don't really have, I'm not trying to make you think something. I actually just want to find the best solution. Now, there's a chance that my solution is the best. There's a chance that your solution is the best. If I go and try and ram my solution down your throat, what are you going to do? You're going to get defensive. We might not get to the best solution. Right. If I hang on to my idea too tightly, we're not going to get the best solution. Right. So the main thing that I can do to help us get to the best solution, not to my solution, not to your solution, but just to the best solution, right. the best thing for me to do is listen to what you have to say. Because... I can't make you listen to me. I can't. But I can listen to you. That's going to open up your mind. It's going to move us in the right direction. So that's that's probably the, the the big difference between the two is that when you're negotiating, you have a goal that you're trying to get to. Well, and here's what I'd add to that because that description is really the way we negotiate is we're just looking for the best deal. Like you well, said, you you're looking for the best plan. Yep. yep. Like the, the, the real hard part in negotiating – is your goal, you need to see it merely as a suggestion. If you get too goal-oriented, you get tunnel vision and you miss better answers. Never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. Mm. Yep. And by definition, you're never going to know the best possible outcome. It's not possible because the other side's holding stuff back. You're holding stuff back. Getting people to accept that intellectually is, is often really difficult with really experienced business people. And I'll say, when are you not holding something back? Uh, budgetary problems, pressures to make the deal, pressure to not make the deal, internal politics, personal pressures. Is there ever a time you're not holding something back? And no one ever said, I negotiate and, I, and I, I'm completely honest all the time. Nobody ever says that. Every, people are always holding stuff back. So if you are, they are too. <laughs> And you're both holding back information that would change the course of the deal if revealed. That's why you're holding it back. Now, so now what happens if you exponentialize this, so to speak? There's an overlap of the unknowns. So it's impossible to know the best deal going in. It's not possible. But very few business people will accept that. It is what it is. I know what it is. I'm experienced. I know what the outcome's going to be. I know what they're being driven by. Mm. Like you, you, you know, you, you are uh, stroking your own ego when you say stuff like that. Yeah. Well, that that means this stuff is even more in line with what I talk about. I all think the it's time. completely in line. The other thing that's interesting is, uh, you know, and I forget if we'll cover this today, but. I talk to business people and, and occasionally, and it's usually, it's very rare that you know you and I are working at a company and, and we can't come to a 
conclusion. We can't come to an agreement. You want to do it this way, I want to do it that way. And when that happens, and the reason it happens so rarely in business, because if you and I work for the same company, well, we both want to make money, we both want to take care of our client, we both want to take care of the team, right? Like, we're, we're ultimately aligned. And so we, we're trying to do something that's going to make us money and take care of the client and take care of our team. We're going to figure out a solution. That's 99% of the time. 1% of the time, you don't want to, you either, you either don't want to help the client, you, there's someone on the team you don't want to take care of, you know, there's some, something going on where we're truly not aligned. Maybe you want to break off and start your own company, so you want us to fail. And if it comes to a point where I'm saying, Chris, hold on a second, this is going to make us money, it's going to take care of our team, it's going to take care of the client, and, and we can't come to an agreement, that means we're not aligned. And you, know, you talk about that, there are some deals where you, know, you want to sell the car, and I want to buy the car, but we just can't, there's no... There's no possible way that we're going to do it because you want, you know, $30,000 for the car. And I, I literally can only pay $20,000. It's not going to happen. Right. We're not aligned. So that does occasionally happen. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting that the meatheads at the FBI were the ones that started trying to listen and empathize and see the other people's perspective. Right, right. Let's get, let's get into the book. Uh and I'll tell you what, when I was reading the book, one thing that was a little bit tricky for me is as I was reading the book, I'm like, I want to read a bunch. You got, you, it's kind of written, you know, I, I've written a couple books too. And in my books, I tell the story, the combat story, the business story, and then give the principle. And that's what your book is too. There's a lot of that. Hey, here's a, a combat story, an FBI story, or a business story. And here's the, the negotiating principle that comes out of it. And I kind of was going back and forth, you know, do I read a bunch of the stories because the stories are great? But I figured since you're here, it'd be great, you know, I'm sure you'll tell some of those stories, but just to get into uh, the techniques, the techniques, the negotiation techniques that you outlined in the book, and that's kind of what I decided to do. May or may not have been the right decision. We're not sure yet. Maybe you'll have to come back just for pure uh, story time. But... I wanted to get into the tactics that you talk about because, again, I think they're so prevalent. And at, at you know, in in your intro to the book, you talk about negotiating being negotiation is life. You're negotiating all the time, right? So these are things that you that everybody can use all the time. And and the other thing is kind of like leadership. People think leadership you either have it or you don't. But really, leadership is a bunch of skills that you can learn. Right. And negotiation, you know, how often do you hear, "Oh, that guy's a great negotiator." You, you hear that a lot, or that guy's not a good negotiator, Negotiator, but you, what you don't realize is negotiation, just like basketball, or just like playing guitar, there's a bunch of skills that you can learn, there's a bunch of moves that you can make, and once you know those skills, once you know those moves, you can utilize them. Right. And so this book, awesome book for pointing out some of these uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures. So, let's get into a little bit. The first technique that you talk about or the first one that I'm going to highlight is called mirroring. Yeah. And you say mirroring, also called isopraxism. Is that right? It's a, a lot of syllables in that there word. There you huh? go. <laughs> well, luckily, you've only got in here once. I don't have to say it again. Is essentially imitation. It's another neurobehavior that humans and other animals display in which we copy each other to comfort each other. It can be done with speech patterns, body language, vocabulary, tempo, tone of voice. It generally, it's generally an unconscious behavior. 
We're rarely aware of when it's happening, but it's a sign that people are bonding in sync and establishing the kind of rapport that leads to trust. It's a phenomenon and now a technique that follows a very basic but profound biological principle. We fear what's different and are drawn to what's similar. As the saying goes, birds of a feather flock together, mirroring then when practiced consciously is the art of insinuating similarity. Trust me, a mirror signals to another unconscious, you and I, we're alike. Once you're attuned to the dynamic, you'll see it everywhere. Couples walking on the street with their steps in perfect synchronicity. Friends in conversation at a park, both nodding their head and crossing legs at about the same time. These people, in a word, are connected. While mirroring is most often associated with forms of nonverbal communication, especially body language, as negotiators, a mirror focuses on the words and nothing else. Not the body language, not the accent, not the tone or delivery, just the words. It's almost laughably simple. For the FBI, a mirror is when you repeat the last three words or the critical one to three words of what someone just said. Of the entirety of the FBI's hostage negotiation skill set, mirroring is the closest one gets to a Jedi mind trick. Simple, yet uncannily effective. By repeating back what people say, you trigger this mirroring instinct and your counterpart will inevitably elaborate on what was just said and sustain the process of connecting. Psychologist Richard Wiseman created a study using waiters to identify what was more effective what the more effective method of creating a connection with strangers, mirroring or positive reinforcement. One group of waiters using positive reinforcement lavished praise and encouragement on patrons using the words such as great, no problem, and sure in response to each order. The other group of waiters mirrored their customers simply by repeating their orders back to them. The results were stunning. The average tip of the waiters who mirrored was 70% more than those who used positive reinforcement. So that's pretty amazing. It's nuts, isn't it? Yeah. You point out later in the book that it can feel weird to mirror when you first start doing it. Yeah, it feels weird to everybody, pretty much. Yeah, it feels weird to everybody. I, you know, and I don't know why that is. Maybe because it seems so obvious to the user. I mean, it like, seems you, obvious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I feel like saying some more based on you doing that. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, and that's one of the ones, again, I was talking about Huberman before. Like, if I could get him to do a ton of experiments, like, try this, try this, try this, I got to find out this. And that would be one of them as to what makes a mirror work so effectively with so many people. And, and it does. Mm-hmm. And then who's attracted to it? I find interesting who's attracted to it. And then I also find it's different circuits in a brain. Like, the majority of the people on my team, we get really good at labeling. And I find, uh, as a performance skill, then uh, in myself and others, we not might not mirror enough. And then those that are really attracted to mirroring and will use it almost exclusively, like, what is it that makes you tick, that makes you like that mirroring so much? And I think it's they're attracted to the simplicity of it, and then they're not offended by simple concepts, which actually in many cases takes a more sophisticated approach to really like simple stuff. And I'm seeing regularly people that really, are, mirroring is a sophisticated skill, and if somebody rejects it off, off, the, 
off the top of their head, I think you're worried about appearing stupid. And if you're so confident in your intelligence that you got no problem looking stupid, then you're happy to mirror. Got it. Uh, one piece of advice that I give to people is when Chris rolls into my office and you're pissed about something, I gotta talk to you right now. One thing I tell people is like, cool, I get out my notebook, get uh, out my pen, yeah. and like, well, what's going on, Chris, talk to me. And to me, that's showing you that I'm listening to what you have to say and I'm taking it seriously. And it seems like mirroring is a, is, a, is another way of doing it. Right, if right. you're repeating what I'm saying, then I'm like, oh, he's paying attention to me. He's listening to me. You're proving that you're listening to the person, which also is a really positive thing. Never mind the whole psychological connection that we're making. Just the fact that when I'm repeating what you're saying back to you, it shows you I'm listening to what you're saying. Right. I often, ha- when I talk about listening and how important it is, People don't realize how important it is, and I think one of the ways that I use to explain how important it is, is I use the opposite, which is if you're talking and I cut you off, everyone knows that's disrespectful. Everybody knows it. It's like a sign of disrespect. If someone's talking, I jump in there and cut them off. Oh, you're not listening to me, that's being disrespectful. The opposite of that is when I actually listen to what you have to say, and now we've got a little technique to prove to you that I'm listening to what you say, I'm gonna mirror those last couple right, words back right. to you. So Cause there's no doubt that you got the words if you repeat them back. Nice little technique. Uh, moving on a little bit. Um, you, you, again, we're hitting the highlights of this book. You gotta you got get the book. The book is definitely going to, is definitely going to leave a mark on your brain. So get the book. In a good way. Yes, in a good way. Yeah, yeah, not psychological damage, but in a positive way. Uh, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit here. The language of negotiation is primarily a language of conversation and rapport, a way of quickly establishing relationships and getting people to talk and think together. Here are some key lessons from this chapter. Remember, a good negotiator prepares going in to be ready for possible surprises. A great negotiator aims to use her skills to reveal the surprises she is certain to find. My note next to that was role play. How often are we role playing if we're negotiating? What do you mean? So let's say from a leadership perspective, you know, it's you and me, we're peers, and I go, hey, Chris, I gotta, I gotta go meet with Echo. You know how he's all mad about you know, us cutting his hours? I'm gonna gotta go talk to him right now. I know he's pissed. Can we run through this a couple times? Oh, right. so, so I'm just gonna role play, so that way I think about what could Echo possibly say. You know, he might, he might get mad about this, he might talk about his family, he might talk about how long he's been here, and I wanna kinda have some contingency plans here, right? To do what you said, prepare be ready for possible surprises and actually be ready to take those surprises. And when he says, you know, what about my family? And I said, well, the important thing is Echo, I know we gotta give you some less hours right now, but the main thing I wanna do is keep you here. The only way you can do that is if we cut back your hours a little bit. It's hopefully gonna be temporary, it should be, when the market picks back up. Are we in an actual negotiation? See where I'm going here, Echo? Echo's nodding his head, he's kind of on board. (laughs) Let's take care of the family. What are you thinking? I get more free time. (laughs) It's true. So there you go. You know, there's another point. 
hey, now's a little time to make all those baseball games you gotta make. So that's a, a point that you made. Role play is something that we did, that we do with our clients all the time. Right. Um, if you're with a good role player. Right. Great right, tool. Right. Like you, if you get somebody who has, who's dialed in enough emotional, enough emotional intelligence to make some good predictions for you. It's probably not bad, even if they're not good at it. You just got to make sure that that's not exactly the way you expect it to go down. Yep, yep. Like, if, all right, so this is a possibility. Not mm-hmm. this is how it's going to happen. Definitely. Uh, you say don't commit to assumptions. Instead, view them as a hypothesis, hypothesis. and use the negotiation to test them regularly, rigorously. To me, my note I wrote down on this one was the most important characteristic for a leader to me is to be humble. Hmm. Yeah. And if you're not humble, you know, I go and think and I'm right, you're wrong. Or I'm just right. It doesn't even matter what you are because I know I'm right. Right. This, this word of, or the way you put it, viewing your ideas as a hypothesis. View my plan as a, it's beautiful. Yeah, as my, and that one that a thousand percent I'll attribute to my son, Brandon. Because he, we'd be talking about this, developing it after I left the FBI and kicking the ideas around. And he'd have an insight or he'd say something. And I know that use the word hypothesis in our vernacular came from him. And it's a good word. When you're going into a discussion with somebody, don't say this is my idea. Say this is a, just a hypothesis. It's one I came up with. Could be right, could be wrong. Let's see where it's at. Uh, you say people who view negotiation as a, a battle of arguments become overwhelmed by the voices in their head. Negotiation is not an act of battle. It's a process of discovery. The goal is to uncover as much information as possible. And that goes back to what we already talked about. I'm looking for the best way of doing it. You're looking for a deal that works. Best deal, best plan. What's the difference, right? Uh, To quiet the voices in your head, make your soul and all-encompassing focus the other person and what they have to say, which means we're listening. The most underrated tool of leadership (laughs) is listening. Uh, Slow it down. Going too fast is one of the mistakes all negotiators are prone to making. If we're in too much of a hurry, people can feel as if they're not being heard. You risk undermining the rapport and trust you've built. Got to get used to that silence. (laughs) 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 And you talk about it in here. Many, many people are uncomfortable with silence. Yeah, for a variety of reasons. <laughs> it's just happened in the last 72 hours, last few days. Um, what I love about what I do for a living now is I get in interesting conversations with people, with fascinating people that I just like aspire to be in the same room with. So Ari Emanuel, you know, the, the Ari, that, that Ari from Hollywood, the guy that, you know, uh, the character on... Um, Entourage is based right, around. Right. So he gives me a call. He wants to talk about something. And he says, you know, Speakers Bureau, Don Walker runs it. We'll get on the phone with him. Cool. So I get on the phone with, with Don and Ari at the same time. And Don has done his homework. But he's one of those guys that's not comfortable with silence. <laughs> so fortunately, he's so smart about what he's doing. And he's done it for so long 
that everything that's coming out of his mouth is exactly what I'm thinking. However, I've, I've done a, a talk a, a couple of times that you got seven to 10 seconds to get somebody's attention or you lose it. And so he starts out by saying, I know I got seven to 10 seconds to get your attention. And he must have talked for about three minutes and finally Ari goes, that's the longest seven seconds I've ever heard in my life. Because <laughs> Don just couldn't stop talking. <sighs> um, next one, put a smile on your face. When people are in a positive frame of mind, they think more quickly and are more likely to collaborate and problem solve instead of fight and resist. Positivity creates mental agility in both you and your counterpart. All good stuff. Now you got you go into this section here and you talk about it in the book already. You tell and again, I'm I'm skipping the stories that you wrap around these where people can get the examples of what you did and where you use these. So get the book so you can get some of those examples. Um, Three voice tones available to negotiators. Number one, the late night FM DJ voice. Use selectively to make a point. Inflect your voice downward, keeping it calm and slow. When done properly, you create an aura of authority and trustworthiness without triggering defensiveness. Number two, the positive playful voice. This should be your default voice. It's a voice of an easygoing, good-natured person. Your attitude is light and encouraging. The key here is to relax and smile while you're talking. Number three, the direct or assertive voice used rarely will cause problems and create pushback. Uh, We did a podcast a while ago on something called psychological reactance. And what this is, is the instinct that everyone has that when I tell you to do something, you don't want to do it. Right. (laughs) It's just a natural reaction that everybody has. And it causes, that's what allows reverse psychology to work. Because when I say, oh, Chris, you can't do this, you go, yes, I can't. Right. Right, right. When I say, uh, you you couldn't paint that fence all by yourself, you go, yes, I could. And you go do it. Um, So that direct voice is something to watch out for. Moving on to this next section, and you already mentioned this, the the idea of labeling. Uh, You say, "Don't don't feel their pain, label it. Emotions are one of the main things that derail communication. Once people get upset at one another, rational thinking goes out the window. That's why instead of denying or ignoring emotions, good negotiators identify and influence them. They are able to precisely label emotions, those of others and especially their own. And once they label the emotions, they talk about them without getting wound up. For them, emotion is a tool. Emotions aren't obstacles, they are a means. The relationship between an emotionally intelligent negotiator and their counterpart is essentially therapeutic. It duplicates that of a psychotherapist with a patient. The psychotherapist pokes and prods to understand his patient's problems and then turns the responses back onto the patient to get him to go deeper and change his behavior. That's exactly what good negotiators do. Getting to this level of emotional intelligence demands opening up your senses, talking less, and listening more. Can learn almost everything you need and a lot more than other people would like you to know simply by watching and listening, keeping your eyes peeled, your ears open, and your mouth shut. Talk to me about labeling a little bit. How are we using it? What does it look like? Um, Simple again. It seems like it sounds like it looks like. 
Seems like something's bothering you. Seems like you don't know when you're going to need me. Seems like you've given this a lot of thought. Just hanging a label on something. It hits the brain in a different way than anything else does. And even questions. Like me and another guy, Steve Scholl, we're doing a lot of stuff with real estate agents these days. Got a book coming out for residential real estate agents in about two months. What's the name of the book so everyone can pre-order it? (laughs) The Full Fee Agent. (laughs) Okay. And the agents we've coached, for example, you go through an open house. You walk around, you look around, and the agent says to you on the way out the door, what would you see that you liked? Basically, pretty good question, as questions go. Starts with the word what. Not a great way, good word to start question with, calibrated question, if you will. And people stop and think. And they go like, ah, well, you know, we kind of like the kitchen. They'll give you a thoughtful answer. Same scenario. Somebody is walking out the door. The agent says, seems like you saw some stuff you liked. Oh, yeah, look, I got to tell you something. We were looking at the bedroom, and we could see our daughter in there. And, you know, the backyard is perfect for the way our kids are. And, like, a complete download of what's going through somebody's brain. Like, just straight, like, from layman's perspective, bypassing the prefrontal cortex entirely, shoving up uh, a listening device in the side of your head and hearing what's going on in your head. Another example. And the labels, when you're exhausted, when you're tired, it's hard to give a good answer. So I'm, I'm on my way back from a trip to the UAE a couple of months ago. And I'm in Seattle waiting to get on a plane, and I'm exhausted. Shoot a text to a buddy. Take care of this. Now, he could have come back at me with a a good question, what makes you ask, to make sure that we're aligned. But instead, he texts me back, seems like you have a reason for asking. Now, I was so tired at that point in time that I saw the difference. Seems like you have a reason for asking. I must have thrown back at him a 10-line text, bang, 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 bang. And then afterwards I thought, if he just said, what makes you ask, I was tired enough that I'd have thought, you know, just, I'd have texted him back, just do it, stop bothering me. There's something about the way the label hits the brain that there's a complete mental change in the response and the amount of information you get out of somebody. It seems like we're danger close on this one to the borderline catastrophic mistake that we can make, which is you come into my office, you're all mad, and I look at you and say, calm down, you're mad. (laughs) (laughs) So the difference here is it seems like you're really mad about this. Yeah. Well, it seems like, seems like this is important because mm-hmm. the great skill works with your boss also. He's one of the students in my class at Georgetown. Boss comes by. Come on, we got to go right now. We got, we got something we got to take care of right now. He called it the boss drive-by. Now, we is you. We got something we got to do right now. That means I got something for you to do right now. And he's in a really, he's loud about it, you know. So this guy gets drugged into his boss's office and immediately says, sounds like this is important. Well, 
the boss is coming at you like that because it is important, which is the first thing he wants or she wants you to understand. So if you demonstrate, sounds like this is important right away, boss immediately comes down three notches, Mm -hmm. starts thinking things through. If somebody's angry, you know, sounds like this has made you angry, sounds like this is important, sounds like this is upsetting. You want them, you want them to come down several notches so you, the lizard brain is out of the driver's seat and the human brain is back in, right? I got a, this book here, Leadership Strategy and Tactics. I talk about one of the tactics I talk about. I call it reflect and diminish, which means when Chris comes into my office and he goes, I can't believe the supply department didn't get this stuff here on time. What I do is reflect some of that anger, but I diminish it. So I say, oh, are you serious? It didn't show up yet? What, how much gear is it that you're missing? So immediately, I show you that I'm on your side. I show you that I'm also mad about it, but we start moving towards a solution. As opposed to like, well, you need to calm down before you come in here, or hey, you need to take ownership of this. Like, cool, we can get there, but little. this is like a very similar idea to reflect and diminish. Yeah, well, and I love that question, how much gear is mission, missing, because like on our list of calibrated questions, we hold people almost exclusively to what and how. And so how feels good to the other side. Mm-hmm. And to touch on what Kahneman would talk about, it triggers in-depth thinking. So the how question, to immediately even think about the answer, let alone answer it, you put them in a completely different frame of mind, which takes all, you know, all the steam out, takes all the gas out of the tank, takes all the wind out of the sails, whatever you want of their reptilian brain, and you've you now got them in a deep thinking mode. How's a great question? How is a great question? Talk me through uh, the next sexual here: tactical empathy. What's uh, how do you how do you how do you use that? What does it mean? Um, First of all, it was we put the word tactical in front of it to destigmatize the word because in common usage the word is thought of as sympathy or compassion. And it's not. In in usage it's been convoluted and distorted. Oh, I can empathize. You know, I've been there. I feel that way. I agree. That was that was not the original origin of the word or how it was meant to be applied. That was why I started collaborating with Harvard in the first place, because Bob Manukin wrote in his book, empathy's not even liking the other side. It's not agreement, it's not liking. It's demonstrating that you understand. Now, and people equate understanding to agreement. In my terrorism days in New York, we're trying to get Muslims to testify against other Muslims in open court. And they were shocked by that by a whole bunch of reasons. One of the, you know, if you want to be proud to be an American, you know, have have a uh, an Arab Muslim who's uh, in this country just trying to work really hard. They said to us after the trial, you know, when you told us ahead of time this was about the truth, we thought you were kidding. And having gone through the process we realize that your system is about the truth. And so how do, we get, how do we get those Muslims to come in and testify honestly? I would sit down with them and I'd say, right off the bat, 
You think for the last 200 years there's been a succession of American governments that have all been anti-Islamic. And they go, yeah. Now, that's empathy. I never said it was true. I didn't say I agreed. I didn't say I disagree. I took no position whatsoever on that statement. I say, you think this. And I'd nail it on the head. And none of it is that hard when you really realize, you know where the other side's coming from, you're just scared to say it. Like I'd say it to these guys and you just watch them be shocked and then dial in with me, having said what was in the back of their mind. That's all it is. And, that's, and that is a, a similar thing to labeling. Uh, you say here labeling is a way of validating someone's emotion by acknowledging it. Give someone's emotion a name and you show that you identify with how that person feels. It gets you close to someone without asking about external factors you know nothing about. Think of labeling as a shortcut to intimacy, a time-saving emotional hack. So this is similar to, oh, this is what you think about a certain subject, which now I'm reading back to you. Hey, you think that the past 200 years has been anti-Islamic governments. This would be, it seems like you're angry about the way the Islamic world's been treated. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be a great start. <laughs> a good start. Like so, some of this stuff is ridiculous too, and especially talking about politicians. Like I'm surprised more politicians don't, don't get this. Mario Cuomo, mm-hmm. Andrew Cuomo's father, Chris Cuomo's father, governor of New York. I saw him address a hostile crowd of African-Americans that were waiting for Winnie Mandela. This is just before Nelson Mandela gets out. Winnie Mandela is doing a world tour. They're keeping the pressure on the South African government, make sure they let him go. She's in New York. Heavy-duty African-American crowd, almost all African-American. Mario Cuomo isn't just not African-American. He's Italian, which in New York is a much different dynamic. Um, at the time, a couple of black guys had been chased out of an Italian neighborhood into traffic and had gotten killed by getting hit by cars. Tensions with the Italians are very high. Cuomo steps up into a crowd that is just short of throwing rocks at him before he said a word. He starts out and he starts going, you see a world that doesn't take your skin color into account. You see a world that doesn't give you a chance because of where you came from and how they perceive you. And he just started laying out thing after thing after thing after thing that they were in fact feeling and thinking, not agreeing with any of it. I, I guarantee you before he stepped out on the stage, he probably said to one of his aides, said, watch me turn this crowd around. They start cheering him inside of about five minutes. Before he's finished with them, they loved him. Like they were so in favor because he dialed into them and what they were thinking and feeling and he wasn't afraid to say it. And to this day, I'm shocked that more politicians don't do that. Because it's not agreement. He, he takes no position on it whatsoever. This is what you see. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, it, it lets that person understand that you understand at a minimum. Which is what we're looking for. Um, Uh, You say here, as you try and insert tools of tactical empathy into your daily life, I encourage you to think of them as extensions of natural human interactions as not and not artificial 
conversational ticks. In any interaction, it pleases us to feel that the other side is listening and acknowledging our situation. Whether you are negotiating a business deal or simply chatting to a person at the supermarket, butcher counter, creating empathetic relationship and encouraging your counterpart to expand on their situation is a basis of healthy interaction. Now, this is something I say to people a lot. I say, hey, listen, you can't pretend to do this stuff. You're not Robert De Niro and you're not Meryl Streep. So don't pretend to be curious about them. Don't pretend, just really feel that way. Yeah. You need to say, hey, I really want to learn what you, you know, I really want to understand what you're thinking here. Because if you're trying to act, you're going to fail. <laughs> Most people are going to fail when they're trying to act. Right. And I always say, intent has a smell. Hmm. So if you come in there and you're just trying to butter me up with some little conversation, I'm going to smell it. Most people are going to smell that. I know when I, the reason I know that is because when I was a young SEAL, I was the youngest and most junior guy in my first two SEAL platoons. So when, you know, the boss would come in, we all, we, we, you know, whatever bullshit he was throwing, we'd see right through it. Like, okay, I see what's really going on here. Intent's going to have a smell. So it should be earnest. All this stuff should be earnest. Uh, You go on to say some key points here. Imagine yourself in your counterpart situation. The beauty of empathy is that it doesn't demand that you agree with the other person's ideas. You may well find them crazy, but by acknowledging the other person's situations, you immediately convey that you're listening. And once they know you are listening, they may tell you something you can use. So boom. The reasons why a counterpart will not make an agreement with you are often more powerful than why they will make a deal. So focus first on clearing the barriers to Agreement. Denying barriers or negative influences gives them credence. Get them into the open. What do you mean by that? Which part? Uh, you and I are talking, and then what barriers are you looking at? What barriers? Sometimes you're saying barriers. The reason I'm not going to agree to a deal isn't because I can't find common ground. It's just that there's these barriers that I have that are that are worse. Right, right, right. So first of all, uh, there's kind of three different things there, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to drive the state through the heart of common ground to start with. And this is my theory on common ground. First of all, the strongest common ground is usually ethnicity or geography, and geography is more powerful than ethnicity. Like if, if you and I grew up in the same neighborhood, um, and I don't know what all combination of ethnic, ethnic groups you are, because like if you were in New York, you'd be one of five, and I wouldn't know which one it is. <laughs> He's you know, talking to Echo Charles right now, by the way. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> but if we grew up in the same neighborhood, like you and I would resonate. Now, if you and I had the exact same ethnicity, and you grew up in New York City, and I grew up in Mississippi, we're going to like, I don't know what this dude is talking about. <laughs> There's going to be some resonance, but geography is stronger. Now then, common ground also. Why do I want to have common ground with you? So you understand me. So we we share core values. You understand where I'm coming from. So if I just demonstrate that I understand, I don't gotta be what? I don't gotta be from your neighborhood. Because what common ground is, does this guy or gal understand me? So that just shows somebody you understand and common ground is unnecessary, not a barriers. Um, example, one of my favorites, uh, Bob Iger's book, The Right of a Lifetime. He's sitting down to negotiate what ends up being the sale of Pixar to Disney. At the time, Jobs hates 
Disney seethes with hatred for Disney. And when I went to school, everybody writes up that purchases, you know, it was obvious, it was a great move, it was great for both companies. Not how this thing goes down. Iger gets put in charge of Disney. He reaches out to Jobs because he, he knows there's been bad blood. Iger's been the number two guy at Disney for nine years. Reaches out to Jobs and on some congratulatory thing, and Jobs immediately shoots back at him, how long were you Michael's number two? Because he, he's blaming Michael Eisner. <laughs> how long were you the number two guy? Well, this was always going down. Not willing to accept any compliment. So Iger says, let's talk about this. Jobs says, come on down. Yeah, you want to talk to me? Come into my backyard. Go to the Apple campus. They get ready to set up. Uh, Jobs wants to work off a whiteboard. Pros and cons. Offers the pen to Iger. Says, you go first. Now, Iger knows how much bad blood there is here. He is not anxious to say a word. And this is in his book. So he says, no, Steve, go ahead. Steve gets up, Jobs starts writing all the reasons why not to do it, all the barriers. He effectively does this approach on himself and writes some nasty stuff about Disney, like just short of out-and-out profanity, insulting, your culture sucks, you guys suck, everything about you is horrible, your children, you know, I mean, he, everything. (laughs) He's laying all this stuff out there. And he, and he kind of gets done, and he looks to uh, hand the pen back to uh, Iger, who's, who's not just crestfallen, because he just think, feels like he's gotten the, the stuffing kicked out of him. And he says, well, I guess there are a lot of negatives there. And Jobs looked back at him and says, you know, sometimes the positive outweigh the negative. Because he deactivated all the barriers. They got all the barriers out. They got them out into the open air. They cleared their head by first discussing and just calling them out. Like, Bob Iger does not offer a bit of explanation for any of this. No, Iger never says, but that wasn't true, or but, oh, yeah, you know, nothing. He doesn't say a word. He just lets all the negatives get out there. And when he, when he lets Jobs run the full course of the reasons for not doing it, then Jobs is left with the positives, which is in fact the way humans make decisions. You will reconcile in your head, how do you live with the negatives, deal with them, deactivate them, before you decide to do something. If you can reconcile all those negatives, as soon as you do, your brain then goes to the positive. And then the positive picks up this tremendous amount of velocity, having been unshackled from the negatives. That's, that's, it, we do it all the time. We do it constantly. I've I had this thought a couple times already during this discussion. It's, and it just hit me again. The idea of talking about the negatives, you know, right now in the veteran community, there's a huge, you know, issue with uh, PTSD and veteran suicide. And uh, I, I've, I've talked about this before. When I've lost my friends in combat, every time I've been a guy that was like, okay, you're giving the eulogy, you're giving a memorial speech, so I had to go and sit down in the, in the pain uh, and sorrow and write down 
what I'm gonna say to a crowd of people, you know, in a day or two days. And what you end up doing is you end up thinking through and putting on paper like, you know, this terrible situation. Um, and then, you know, coming out of the military, when I got out of the military, I was talking to people, telling the leadership lessons that I've learned, but in telling the leadership lessons that I've learned, you're also talking through some of the really bad things that happened. So as I hear you say that, look, you got to get those negatives out there. I tell veterans that a lot, you know, get, it helps when you talk through these things. You know, they say that about World War II versus Vietnam. World War II, you got done with World War II, what did you do? You got on a ship with a bunch of other guys that just were in combat and you sailed back to America for six weeks and you sat below decks and told stories to each other about the friends that you lost and all the stuff that you've been through. Well, in Vietnam, what did you do? You got done with your tour, you got on a plane for 15 hours, and then you got dropped off in Main Street America, you didn't get to process it, you didn't get to talk about any of this stuff. So it was stuck there. Yeah, and then you got yelled at. So, yeah, this idea of getting the negatives out there, even though it's uncomfortable, and it is uncomfortable, it sucks, no one wants to do it. But if you do it, you start to deal with them. You start to contend with it. And right. the, I can tell you right now, the more you do it, the more you process it and the better you're gonna feel. Right. So it's not even just a negotiation thing. This is like a life thing. Yeah. Um, another note you make, pause. After you label a barrier or a mirror or mirror a statement, let it sink in. Don't worry, the other party will fill the silence. Getting used to that silence thing. Label your counterpart's fears to defuse the power. We all want to talk about happy stuff, but remember, the faster you interrupt action in your counterpart's amygdala, the part of the brain that generates fear, the faster you can generate feelings of safety, well-being, and trust. Same idea, right? Yeah. If we talk about that thing that is pissing you off or that thing that's scaring you, the minute you let that out of that cage, it like loses some of its power. Right. You know, when we work with explosive, we do something called tamping the explosives which means you compress that, you hold that thing in, and it's gonna cause more damage. So when you cover up an explosive, it creates a bigger explosion. That's why you see like a kid puts a firecracker in a microwave oven, and it causes, because the microwave oven is shut, and there's massive overpressure, and it blows the door, you know, 150 yards, because you compressed it. Well, it's the same thing with this fear that you're talking about. You let that thing out, let it breathe. It's gonna take the sting off of it. Uh, and that's why you know you just talked about this with Steve Jobs. List the worst things that the other party could say about you and say them before the other person can. This is counterintuitive. Counterintuitive. What's counterintuitive about this is I think to myself, you know, if I actually tell Chris that it seems like I'm ripping him off, what if he doesn't think that he probably won't know and why should right, I admit to it? Right, it's like right. he knows. He knows. He's thinking that, you're thinking. If I'm thinking that, hey, this price is probably high, he's definitely thinking the price is high. Uh, Remember you're dealing with a person who wants to be appreciated and understood, so use labels to reinforce and encourage positive perception dynamics. There you go. I mean, this is just uh, some awesome techniques here. Uh, The opening to chapter four here is kind of a surprise. Beware of yes and master no. Right. At some point in their development, all negotiators have to come to grips with no. When you come to realize the real psychological dynamic behind it, you'll love the word. It's not just that you lose your fear of it, but that you can come to learn what it does for you 
and how you can build deals out of it. Yes and maybe are often worthless, but no always alters the conversation. Talk us through that. Yeah, um, I think I first came across this idea. Jim Camp wrote a book in 2002 called Start With No. And I remember seeing that on a bookshelf and like doing a double take on like, start with no? Well, I thought we were supposed to get the yes. Like yes was a magic <laughs> word. And he had discovered inadvertently that if you just tell people it was okay to say no, that they were more likely to agree. He's right up front, he called it the right to veto, and he'd say, you know, I just want you to know before, before we get into this, you can say no at any time. You say no to me anytime, and uh, and I'll go away. And he made more deals. So accidentally, one of my hostage negotiators in uh, Pittsburgh tells me, she says, did I, you know, because I'm making everybody read this book. Did I do this? Now, she was going to be removed removed from the negotiation team in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh because her boss was jealous of how much the police department loved her. So she finds out she's going to get removed, which is going to hurt the office's relationship with the police department. But this guy doesn't care because he's jealous. She sits down with him and she says, do you want the FBI to be embarrassed? Now, I remember when she first told me that, I remember thinking through at the moment, like I would never have had the guts to say that. <laughs> like that sounds so manipulative. I imagine this guy just bursting into flames on the spot. <laughs> but instead, this guy relaxes, he leans back in his chair, he, you know, he steeples with his hands, like that's what people do when they feel really good about themselves. <laughs> and uh, he goes, no. She says, what do you want me to do? And he says, well, you know, stop letting this stuff interfere with your investigations now. Go back to work. So he calls her in to fire her from the team. She walks out, no problem. So I'm like, there's something here. And then I start thinking about other conversations I've had. Uh, lieutenant on a police department that I thought got, got in his guy's way a lot because he was uh, overmanaged him. I remember him saying to me once, you know, a lieutenant's job is to say no. And I thought, I, no, it's not. A, a lead, you know, lieutenant's a leader. A leader's job is to encourage people not to say no. So why is he saying this? It makes him feel good to say no. It makes him feel safe. It makes him feel protected. And we start experimenting with, instead of letting people say no, what happens if you actually get them to say no? Like, how does that change feelings, the way they react? And... It, it makes such a massive difference, like instantaneous. Like, if it's important, I don't say, do you disagree? I say, do you disagree? I don't say, is this a good idea? Is this a ridiculous idea? I don't say, you know, what? I'm never going for yes. I'm always going for no. And, you know, if I can, because I, I know I'm all over the place here. I'm on a plane from uh, JFK to L.A. where it's a red eye and... uh a black businessman sitting next to me. He's kind of loud. Uh, he's got a he's got a big colorful sweater on. But I just you know uh, uh, not 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 crazy out there. But I just think you know interesting interesting cat. Clearly a businessman. He's got people on his team because people that are sitting you know back in the economy are walking by and you know hey boss how you doing and finally but I hear him on the phone and he's just trying to force people to say yes. 
And finally, I can't take it anymore <laughs> in between calls. <laughs> and I tap him on the shoulder and I said, look, get him to say no. Change your questions. You drive me crazy. I can't take it anymore. I can, I'm hearing you <laughs> shove this down people's throats. Switch from yes to no. And I go, instead, and again, instead of the agree, do you disagree? Instead of would you do this, are you against doing this? And I give him a quick rundown of how to make the switch. And he's a smart dude, picks it right up really fast. So he gets back on the phone. And I also say, you know, the reason you should listen to me is because I wrote this book, Never Split the Difference. <laughs> so just do it. Smart dude, learnable, coachable, does it instantaneously. Looks back at me and says, thanks. Yeah. He says, let me introduce myself. My name's Trevor. You may know me by my stage name, Buster Rhymes. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. Okay. You know, your hair's a little shorter right now. I didn't recognize you right off the bat, but uh, <laughs> I do recognize that name. Uh, you go on to say, no has a lot of skills. No allows real issues to be brought forth. No protects people from making and lets them correct ineffective decisions. No slows things down so people can freely embrace their decisions and their agreements they enter into. No helps people feel safe, secure, emotionally comfortable, and in control of all their decisions. No moves everyone everyone's efforts forward. And there's a there's a, a a thing that you point out here which is important. Because you say using this chapter's tools in daily life is difficult for many people because they go directly against one of society's biggest social dictums, that is, be nice, right? Especially because in the book, you're like, hey, smile, be pleasant, and, and you know, getting people to say no is one of those things. You say we've instrumentalized niceness in a way as a way of greasing the social wheels, yet it's often a ruse. We're polite and we don't disagree to get through daily existence with the least degree of friction. But by turning niceness into a lubricant, we've leached it of meaning. A smile and a nod might signify get me out of here as much as it means nice to meet you. That's death for a good negotiator who gains their power by understanding their counterpart's situation and extracting information about their counterpart's desires and needs. Extracting that information means getting the other party to feel safe and in control. And while it may sound contradictory, the way to get there is by letting the other party, by getting the other party to disagree, to draw their own boundaries, to define their desires as a function of what they do not want. In other words, getting them to say no. Yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> it just, it's, of the, of the, you know, the different skills are counterintuitive to, the, to their own degree. Like, the extremely strong degree that getting somebody to say yes makes them uncomfortable, concerned, worried about what kind of traps they're walking into, where's the hook, what have I forgotten. Complete different 180 degree turn on getting them to say no. Like the, the comfort level from saying no and then the ability to think things through immediately. Like if I were to say to you disagree, do you disagree? You go, no, I don't disagree, but here are the following problems. And you'd lay them right out, one, two, three, four, five, right off the top of your head, have no problem. If I'd have said, do you agree? And you'd have wanted to say, yes, I agree, but here are the following problems. You won't do it the second way because you would have felt that the mere utterance of the word yes hooked you. Mm. 
And so then anything that you lay out after that feels like you're digging yourself in deeper. But having said no, you don't feel hooked. So now you're going to lay out the next four or five things that you might need because you don't feel like you're digging yourself in deeper. And the next four or five things after the yes or no are what's critical. It's never never right there. It's never at the point of decision. It's really here are the problems or here's what you got to accomplish. And you got to get past that. And you get past it freely when people say no because they feel safe and protected. They feel no sense of obligation. They don't feel like they're digging themselves in with each thing they say after that. I got the, that emotion from that. You, you got an example in the book, real common example. The two, the two examples, you, is, now a bad, is now a bad time to talk? Right. Versus, do you have a few minutes to talk? Right. Like when someone calls you up on the phone and says, hey, do you have a few minutes to talk right now? I, w- I want to say no, but I also kind of feel like when I say yes, like what do we get? But when someone says, hey, is it a bad time to talk right now? I'm like, no, it's not a bad time. I'm like, okay with it. It's just one of those things. Uh, the other thing that you got in here that really aligns a lot with, with what I talk about a lot is um, n- negotiate in their world. Persuasion is not about how bright or smooth you or forceful you are. It's about the other party convincing themselves that the solution you want is their own idea. So don't beat them with logic or brute force. Ask them questions that open past your goals. It's not about you. I, I say all the time, written in these books, make it their idea, right? How can I make this their idea? Yep. And the other thing I say a lot is, the truth doesn't matter if I punch you in the face with it, right? I mean, if I punch you in the right. face with the truth, you're not gonna be open to it. Right. You're gonna be pissed, and you're gonna find a way to defend yourself, and you're probably gonna stab me in the neck with uh, your facts. <laughs> From your perspective, so uh, with a dull spoon, right? Stab you in the neck with a dull yeah, spoon. Yeah. Uh, now we get into this section here. Trigger the two. The chapter five. Trigger the two words that immediately transform any negotiation. You say the crisis negotiation unit, the FBI crisis negotiation negotiation unit developed what is a powerful staple in the high stakes world of crisis negotiation, the behavioral change stairway model, BCSM, behavioral change stairway model. The model proposes five stages, active listening, empathy, rapport, influence, and behavioral change that take any negotiator from listening to influencing behavior. The origins of this model can be traced back to the great American psychologist Carl Rogers who proposed that real change can only come when a therapist accepts that the client as he or she is an approach known as unconditional positive regard. The vast majority of us, however, as Rogers explained, come to expect that love, praise, and approval are dependent on saying and doing things people consider correct. That is because for most of us, positive regard, for the positive regard we, we experience is conditional. We develop a habit of hiding who we really are and what we really think, instead calibrating our words to gain approval but disclosing little. So they come up with this thing, active listening, that's the first step, empathy, all right, I kinda see where you're coming from, rapport, now we're starting to understand each other, Influence, you're starting to listen to what I have to say, and then behavior change. You're actually going to do something different based right, on right. the influence here. Uh, if you successfully take someone up the behavioral change stairway, each stage attempting to engender more trust and more connection, there will be a breakthrough 
moment when unconditional positive regard is established and you can begin exerting influence. After years of refining the staircase and its tactics, I can teach anyone how to get to that moment. But as legions of B-school grads weaned on the most famous negotiating book in the world, Getting TS, I've ultimately discovered you more than likely think, more than likely haven't gotten there yet if what you're hearing is the word yes. You'll soon learn the sweetest two words in any negotiation are actually, that's right. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for the other person, the person that you're negotiating with to say, that's right. The that's right breakthrough usually doesn't come at the beginning of a negotiation. It's invisible to the counterpart when it occurs and they embrace what you've said. To them, it's a subtle epiphany. So talk to us about that's right. Well, it's what people say when they're completely all in on what was just said. Mm-hmm. Like, and if you look for it, you see it everywhere. And, and one of the great examples that I like to use is uh, people that are devoted to Donald Trump. And my son pointed this out. I mean, if that isn't the proof of the that's right moment, somewhere in a speech or in the presidential debate, when he articulated something, when you bought in completely, you looked at the screen and you pointed at it and you said, that's right. And it, it's not just Trump. It's any charismatic leader anywhere. When the charismatic leader is articulated something that you believe is totally true and it totally gets you, nobody ever says you're right. They always say that's right. And there's, that statement is when, when you were totally bought in on what was just said. And as, as and our co-author, Tall, was the one that pulled out uh, the description of it being a subtle epiphany. Tall contributed brilliantly to the book. I mean, he brought a lot to the table besides just being a writer. And so then um, as I was getting more into neuroscience, I look up neuroscience, the neuroscience of epiphany. What neurochemicals do you get hit with? You get hit with serotonin and oxytocin. <laughs> and oxytocin is the bonding drug. So they, hence people bonded to Donald Trump or any other leader. You're, you're bonded to Obama. You're bonded to whoever has uttered the things that you believe to be completely true. There's this, it's a one-way bond and there's a feeling of a bond. And then... Again, back to Huberman's podcast, you know, for me, just being bonded is enough. On another one of his podcasts, he points out oxytocin inclines people to tell the truth. So now not only are you bonded to me, you're more likely to tell me the truth. And then he points out on yet another podcast, serotonin, the feeling of satisfaction, which means you're not as demanding. So if I can get a that's right out of you, you're going to bond to me, you're going to tell me the truth, and you're going to make fewer demands. What else do I want? <laughs> yeah, the the example, and again, the details in the book are, are outstanding, but the example that you give goes back to the thing that I opened up with. You had Sabaya, this mastermind terrorist, <clears throat> and you were in negotiations with him, and you're actually working through a translator, and the translator was a hard ass, you know, pretty much let's, we need to go at him type of attitude. And you kind of convinced him over time to take a less, a more indirect approach. And, and eventually the, the negotiator kind of read back 
hey, look, you've been oppressed for this long. Right, the, right. the Spanish came here. They converted your people against their will, and you've been suffering underneath this government. And Sabaya says, that's, that's right. right. <laughs> and that's what changes it. That's what changes his attitude. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and, and if I can, a couple of tangents, because yeah. you know, that was also when I was working with McCraven. Oh, okay. Not Admiral, but Captain McCray. <laughs> and he was he was phenomenal. And he, he chaired he created the hostage working group of the National Security Council. His leadership you know, what a great guy to work with. I can remember in particular when we were working that case and the one that followed on. Like there was some stuff that the US government was very nervous about. And you needed a guy um, who stood up properly for everybody and for the right thing, if you will. And I can remember being at one meeting in particular, uh, um, Captain McRaven, McRaven, I don't mean to be disrespectful. I'm sure it sounds disrespectful, just call him McRaven. <laughs> but uh, McRaven stands up and he says, you know what, I'm not gonna stop talking about this till somebody tells me to sit down and shut up and they're gonna have to tell me twice. And I remember thinking, that's the guy I want talking to the White House. That's the guy that I want talking to the Department of State. And we're in the midst of that shilling case, right. and the last thing that we need when we're in a forward operating base is any sort of um, insecurity, indecision from Washington, D.C. And when you're out there on the front lines, having a guy like Captain Bill McRaven, Admiral Bill McRaven, holding things together back in Washington, D.C. It's just a ridiculously reassuring feeling to have. He was a great guy. No doubt about it. That's, that's awesome. Uh, there's a big difference, and you pointed out in the book, there's a huge difference, and you mentioned it, but I just want to cover it again just to make sure people catch this. There's a huge difference between that's right and you're right. Right. Because you're right, and here's a good way to here's a good way to translate this. You know, you're talking to your wife, and you know you say something. She goes, "Oh, you're right." <laughs> that is not what we're looking for. That means she wants you to shut up, and she's going to carry on, and you haven't come to any kind of conclusion. Exactly. Uh, so there's a big difference. Getting someone to say you're right. In fact, there's a lot of times where that's in an increase in hostilities. That just means they're looking for another way to attack you. Yeah, and they haven't quite got it yet, but they're they're waiting. They're laying in wait, and it, it's if they're giving you your right, um, you you got problems. Be careful with that one. Look for that's right. Uh, next section: bend their realities, and and. You get into this here, don't compromise, which is an interesting thing we're going to talk through. The win-win mindset pushed by so many negotiation experts is usually ineffective and often disastrous. At best, it satisfies neither side. And if you employ it with a counterpart who has a win-lose approach, you're setting yourself up to be swindled. Of course, as we've noted previously, you need to keep a cooperative, rapport-building, empathetic approach, the kind that creates a dynamic in which deals can be made, but you have to get rid of that naivete because compromise, splitting the difference, can lead to terrible outcomes. Compromise is often a bad deal, and a key theme we'll hit in this chapter is no deal is better than a bad deal. Even in kidnapping, yes, a bad deal in kidnapping is where someone pays and no one comes out. 
To make my point on compromise, let me paint an example. A woman wants her husband to wear black shoes with his suit, but her husband doesn't want to. He prefers brown shoes. So what do they do? They compromise. They split the difference. They meet halfways, halfway, and you guessed it. He wears one black shoe and one brown shoe. Is this the best outcome in fact? No. In fact, it's the worst possible outcome. Either of the two outcomes, black or brown, would have been better. I'm here to call bullshit on compromise right now. We don't compromise because it's right. We compromise because it's easy and because it saves face. We compromise in order to say that at least we got half the pie. Distilled to his essence, we compromise to be safe. Most people in negotiation are driven by fear or by the desire to avoid pain. Too few are driven by their actual goals. So don't settle. Here's a simple rule. Never split the difference. Creative solutions are almost always preceded by some degree of risk, annoyance, confusion, and conflict. Accommodation and compromise produce none of that. You've got to embrace the hard stuff. That's where the great deals are, and that's what negotiators do. Amen. (laughs) It's quiet. Say amen. At what point did you realize that was the title of the book? Tall came up with that. Um, the original title was Killer Deals. We started working with Tall, Brandon and I, my son Brandon, um, uncredited co-author of the book. And Tall says, all right, so we're gonna, we'll, we'll start with Killer Deals and at some point in time, the, the proper title of the book will occur to me and I'll tell you what it is. Now you're free to disagree, mm-hmm. but I can tell you when I get deeply into this enough, it, I'll, I'll give you the title and probably about halfway through the whole writing process was when he said titles never split the difference. Says that's the essence of what you guys are talking about. It, if you completely understand it and understand why, he says that's what the title is. And we're like, you got it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he came. He talk came up with it probably about halfway through the writing process. Now, how does that? We're going to get into. I think we're going to cover it, but the uh, the Ackerman approach, right. right? Now, in the Ackerman approach, you're shooting for a specific number, right? And you know, you're kind of compromising to get to that number. Nope. Why? Well, you if you're shooting for a specific number, why is that a compromise? Okay, as long as you get your number. But that that's my number. Uh, meaning you want to you sell me this car for $10,000, I only want to give you $7,000. My first offer is a lowball offer. Right. And then I come up, well, my first offer is 65% of what I want to pay. Then I go 85, 95, then 100% of what I want to pay. Right. So I guess we didn't, we didn't split the difference. No, it's not, and, and there's also a very specific um, uh, sort of rationale behind the offers. Each offer has to be effectively half as much as the previous increase. Right. You got you to gotta always have diminishing increases. The other side's going to feel like they're beating you into a position. Mm-hmm. They're going to be very gratifying for them. Uh, deadlines. You talk about here, time is one of the most critical Crucial variables in any negotiation, the simple passing of time and its sharper cousin, the deadline, are the screw that pressures every deal to conclusion. Whether your deadline is real and absolute or merely a line in the sand, it can trick you into believing that doing a deal now is more important than getting a good deal. Deadlines regularly make 
people say and do impulsive things that are against their best interests because we all have a natural tendency to rush as a deadline approaches. Yeah, not only rush as a deadline approaches, but not rush at all until it's looming. No. Like, and people lose track of that it's the process. And at deadlines are really just designed to kick the process into gear. But human beings, being what they are, if you give somebody a deadline on a Friday, don't expect to get into a, any kind of conversation before Thursday. She's <laughs> not going to happen. Yeah. I've done a lot of deals like on the way to the airport, we're on our way out. And that's when the discussion actually starts, which right. is not optimal. Right. Uh, skipping ahead a little bit in the book, the F word, why it's so powerful, when to use it, and how. The most powerful word in negotiations is fair. Right. <laughs> As human beings, we're mightily swayed by how much we feel we have been respected. People comply with agreements if they feel they've been treated fairly and lash out if they don't. Once you understand what a messy, emotional, and destructive dynamic fairness can be, you can see why fair is a tremendously powerful word and you need to use it with care. In, in fact, of the three ways that people drop the F-bomb, only one is positive. The most common is a judo-like defensive move that destabilizes the other side. This manipulation usually takes the form something like, we just want what's fair. Think back to the last time someone made this implicit accusation of unfairness to you. And I bet you have to admit that it immediately triggered feelings of defensiveness and discomfort. These feelings are often subconscious and lead to irrational concession. The second use of the F-bomb is more nefarious. In this one, your counterpart will basically accuse you of being dense or dishonest by saying, we've given you a fair offer. It's a terrible little jab meant to distract your attention away from, oh, uh, distract your attention, manipulate into giving in. If you find yourself in this situation, the best reaction is to simply mirror the F that has just been lobbed at you. Fair, you'd respond, pausing to let the words power do to them what it was intended to do to you. Following that with a label, it seems like you're ready to provide evidence that supports that, which alludes to the opening of their books or otherwise handing over information that will either contradict their f claim to fairness or give you more data to work with than you had previously. Right away, you declaw the attack. The last use of the F word is my favorite because it's positive and constructive. It sets the stage for honest and empathetic negotiation. Here's how I use it. Early on in a negotiation, I say, I want you to feel like you're being treated fairly at all times, so please stop me at any time if I'm being unfair and we'll address it. It's simple and clear and sets me up as an honest dealer. With that statement, I let people know it's okay to use the word with me if they use it honestly. As a negotiator, you should strive for reputation of being fair. Your reputation precedes you. Let it precede you in a way that paves success. I, when I read all that, I was like, oh, we all, it seems like human beings have this sort of natural, we're just raised that fairness is a big thing for us. And you know what I, what I, sometimes when I think of, when I can't quite make a connection, I think of the opposite and what that triggers in people. So what's like the epic insult? That guy's a cheater, right? Mm. That guy's a cheater. Oh yeah, he won, but he cheated. Yeah. You know, you hate that guy. You don't want to be that guy. When someone says you cheated, you get all defensive. Mm. So it's the same thing here, this, this F-bomb 
when it gets dropped on you, and someone goes, hey, we just want what's fair. What do you mean I'm not being fair? Mm-hmm. And it could trigger you to making a deal you shouldn't have made. Uh, a lot. And <laughs> the amount of time, like there, it's rare that in a, uh, a negotiation that has any sort of contentiousness to it at all, the word will always come up. I mean, it's a great manipulative device, and people often say it out of defensiveness, but for the same for the same ends. You know, get the other side to change their mind, providing no evidence whatsoever as to why they should. <laughs> <laughs> that's not fair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, you see it, and usually it's uh, it's when the tables have gotten turned on somebody in an unexpected way, that's when they'll drop the word. What does that look like? Um, a person I know who's an eminently fair person was in a real estate negotiation right after the housing market where they were at dropped substantially. And they got the buyer to increase the offer above market mm by simply saying, we just want what's fair. Now the person that used this phrase had gotten the tur- tables turned on them by a drop in a market. So it wasn't even the buyer's fault. Buyer didn't do anything. Buyer's following the market. So this person out of simple defensiveness having had the tables turned on them, they felt that it was an unfair series of circumstances. Now, is, is that the buyer's fault? Buyers are buying in a real estate market that is dictated by the dynamics of the market. And that was the first time it really jumped out at me. And then I started looking for it across the board because the person that told the story got the buyer to raise the price. And I remember thinking like that, wait, 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 as an innocent bystander here, that, you know, that's not fair. <laughs> There's no fairness there. <laughs> and I thought if, if a good person can do this and change, completely change the dynamics in a relationship, in the negotiation, how often does it come up? And then you start looking for it and you see it over and it is so effective that the, the manipulators have seen the good people use it and change the dynamics that they've gotten really good at using it to cover up manipulative behavior. Watch out for that one. Got a section in here, bend their reality. You start going to some of the methodologies of that. Anchor their emotions. To bend your counterpart's reality, you have to start with the basics of empathy. So start out with an accusation, with an accusation audit acknowledging all of their fears. By anchoring their emotions in preparation for a loss, you inflame the other side's loss aversion so that they'll jump at the chance to avoid it. You talk about loss aversion, people are people don't want to lose. Right. And and this uh, accusation audit is sort of what Steve Jobs put up on the board when he did right. it himself. Right, right. Um, Iger could have done it if he if he had stepped up to the thing and said, Well, you're probably gonna say this and this and this, but he got Steve Jobs to do it, which is even better. Uh, but you anchor those emotions. The other thing you say is uh, let the other guy go first most of the time. I suggest you let the other side anchor monetary negotiations. The real issue is that neither side has a perfect information going on the table. This means if you don't know enough to open up with confidence. 
So this is what we hear all the time in negotiations. You know, you don't say the number first. How, how much do you want? How much will you give me for the car? Well, what do you think it's worth? Like we do this around and around, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, what are the disadvantages, advantages of opening or giving the number? Uh, well, as, uh, very much as a general rule, I'm I'm going to want the other side to throw the number first because it's information. It's gonna it's gonna tell me it's gonna tell me data. It's gonna tell me mindset. Where you're coming from? It's gonna tell me a lot. None of which am I getting if I go first. So as a general rule, we don't go first. Again, a general rule. It's at some point in time to keep from going round and around and around, I'm gonna throw a number out. Now I'm gonna characterize it before I throw it out. And if it I'm gonna say this is a lot. When when we quote prices for our coaching, first of all, our coaching is more expensive. If you can find negotiation coaching anywhere, which is very hard to find, we're going to charge you more than anybody else does. So I'm going to I'm going to say that. I'm going to charge you more than anybody else does. Somebody somebody wants to bring me in for a talk. I'm going to I'm I'm going to be so expensive, and we're going to quote you a heart stopping price. Now then, you get that causes you to reflect on your value. It causes you uh, to run the numbers. One of two things. You're going you're to ask me what the number is. And you're either going to say, I, well, he said it was expensive. Or you're going to say, wow, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and then we don't bargain. So if I got to throw a number, I, I, I like to refer to it as I never throw the number out naked. If I and if otherwise, I want to know where you're coming from. I also want to give you a price that you want, because price is a term, and I need to hit the sweet spot on your price. If I go too high, you're not going to over deliver. You're going to feel like you undervalued yourself, and you're going to do the same amount of work if I pay you too much. I found that out the hard way. If I go too low, you're going to do a lousy job. So what I need, what I really want, besides just throwing a number first, I want to know what number do you think a good number is that you're going to work really hard for and feel like you earned your money and not change that you just undervalued yourself in the past and now now all of a sudden I'm, I'm worth this much more money, which means you're not going to put in extra effort. You're also talking here about if people are, are stuck on the money, you can start talking about other things. Right. The non-monetary terms. Right. So like if you're negotiating for a job, you start talking about things that don't have anything to do with money. Right. And that can be a good way to start to move the conversation forward. The, uh, <laughs> this is just interesting psychology. The biggest thing to remem- remember, and when you start, to, when, you, when you do get to numbers, you say the biggest thing to remember is that numbers that end in zero inevitably feel like temporary placeholders, guesstimates that you can easily be neg- negotiated off of. But anything you throw out that sounds less rounded, say $37,263, feels like a figure that you came to as a result of thoughtful calculation. Such numbers feel serious and permanent to your counterpart, so use them to fortify your offers. Yeah, it's nuts, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just, that's voodoo. Yeah, that it is, is so true, and it's just complete voodoo. Uh, that's, 
and and yet go look at the prices in a store, right? We see examples of it everywhere. Yeah. They're all nine dollars and ninety five cents or whatever. And there's a psychological thing to be you know ten dollars seems like a ton of money. Nine ninety five I can afford all day. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the original magic one that I love, like iTunes, ninety nine cents for a song. Back when Napster, and you could get all your music for free. Like Jobs and Apple, like let's put a number on this that seems so small and it's not, a, it's not a round number and suddenly people were paying for music again. Mm-hmm. 99 cents. <laughs> Still 99 cents for a song, isn't it? Is it? Some songs, yeah. Uh, I guess it's all like streaming and all this stuff now. You don't really buy, well, actually I don't. I buy like the whole thing, whatever yeah. that is. 129 sometimes. So they jacked the prices. Some, some, yeah. <sighs> some key points. All negotiations are defined by a network of subterranean desires and needs. Don't let yourself be fooled by the surface. Once you know that the Haitian kidnappers want a party, want party money, you'll be better. You'll be miles better prepared. <laughs> and there's a whole section in here about that, about these Haitian kidnappers. You did, you worked all kind like dozens of cases of these Haitian kidnappers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> One yeah, of the yeah. things you've identified is they would like kidnap early in the week they wanted that money by friday so they could go out and party yeah <laughs> and so how much do they need to have a great party that weekend that's sort of the number that you would end up looking for i mean it's awesome uh splitting the difference is wearing one black and one brown shoe don't compromise meeting halfway often leads to bad deals for both sides approaching deadlines entice people to rush the negotiating process do impulsive things that are against their best interests we talked about the f word you can bend your counterpart's reality by anchoring his starting point. Before you make an offer, emotionally anchor them by saying how bad it will be. When you get to numbers, set an extreme anchor to make your real offer seem reasonable or use a range to seem less aggressive. The real value of anything depends on what vantage point you're looking at it from. And last, people, tend, people take more risks to avoid a loss than realize a gain. Make sure your counterpart sees that there's something to lose by inaction. That's why the that's why the website says today only. Yeah, you'll miss out. Uh, you got a section in here that's about fast forward a little bit. Calibrated quest. Calibrate your questions. And we we kind of discussed this earlier. I don't know if we were recording or not, but I talked about t- asking earnest questions as a leader. You're asking earnest questions, and you've got this. A little bit similar approach, but uh, different verbiage here. Calibrated questions are not just random requests for comment. They have a direction. Once you figure out where you want a conversation to go, you have to design the question that will ease the conversation in that direction while letting the other guy think think it's his choice to take you there. That's why I refer to these questions as calibrated questions. You have to calibrate them carefully, just like you would calibrate a gun, sight, or a measuring scale to target a specific problem. The good news is, is that there are rules for that. First off, calibrated questions avoid verbs like can, is, are, do, or does. These are close-ended questions that can be answered with a simple yes or no. Instead, they start with a list of words people know as reporters questions who what when where why and how those words inspire your counterpart to think and then speak expansively but let me cut that list even further it's best to start with what how and sometimes why 
nothing else. Who, when, and where will often just get your counterpart to share a fact without thinking. And why can backfire, regardless of what the language, what language the word why is translated into, it's accusatory. There are very rare moments when this is to your advantage. The only time you can use why successfully is when defending, when defensiveness that is created supports the change you are trying to get them to see. Why would you ever change from the way you've always done things to try my approach, as an example? So I found this very useful because, you know, I, I often talk about something uh, from a military perspective called the indirect approach, which means I don't want to attack you head on. I want to, you know, I want to attack you from a flank where you're not defensive. And this applies to everything. It applies to leadership. It applies to approaching people. It applies to, you know, if you've got an ego, which everyone does, and I attack your plan, that means I'm attacking your ego, you're going to get defensive. So, you know, oftentimes it's in order to get around your ego, I'm going to ask you earnest questions about the situation. But the key thing that you've got here is I don't say, well, why do you think this is a good plan? Because that's an accusatory question. Right. Instead, I'm a better question would be, hey, can you help me understand the outcome that you're looking for with this plan? And all of a sudden we've got, we've taken away any possibility that you can see that I'm accusing or attacking your plan, which thereby is attacking your ego. Uh, how did you come across this calibrated questions idea? Um, Camp's book, 2002, he called them interrogatives, the reporter's questions. In the FBI, we called them just open-ended. You know the list, what, who, what, when, where, how, and why. And I noticed that he leaned heavily on one in particular, which was, what's the biggest challenge you face? Now, I didn't realize that at the time, um, first of all, it's a what question, what's deferential, people like to be asked what to do. Secondly, now, we now know, in a black swan method, what is principally designed to uncover problems. What's the biggest challenge you face? What gets in the way? I'm coaching some dentists recently. People are balking at how much their dental work's gonna cost. The question is, what happens if you do nothing? You know, it's a what question, it's deferential. And so then be, begin to, to look harder at the questions. I thought that was the only lab, overlap between business and hostage negotiation at the time. Then in the Burnham case in the Philippines, um, it goes bad, train wreck all the way around. And somebody got proof of life on our hostages in the midst of that case. And I just remember it blew my mind because a hostage was overheard on a phone. And I'd never gotten a hostage on a phone. So between how does somebody get a hostage on a phone and who the heck is getting proof of life on our hostages. Like there was more than one buyer. Like I didn't know what to do with this. So the case case is an ongoing 13 month long train wreck. A lot of people died, including two out of, the, two out of three of the total Americans that were taken. Listen to a drug dealer kidnapping in Pittsburgh a few months afterwards. Drug dealer on drug dealer. One drug dealer's got the other drug dealer's girlfriend hostage. Who do you go when somebody important to you has been kidnapped? Even if you're a drug dealer, you go to the FBI. <laughs> so our hostage negotiators are riding around listening to the drug dealer talk to the other drug dealer. And just on his own, he goes, 
Hey dog, how do I know she's okay? And the change in the tone of voice, the kidnapper drug dealer went from thinking he was in charge to being having lost all control of the negotiation and not knowing it at the time. And it was just a how question. So then we changed all of our negotiation kidnapping strategy to how and what questions, just hammering them with how and what questions. Because you want to you wanna test, test it out in the kidnapping. And finally, I'm coaching another kidnapping in the Philippines, coaching a brother. His brother's been grabbed by a serial killer, lone kidnapper, only time in my entire um, experience with one kidnapper, they're always operating gangs, and the guy was a, we found out after the fact, because we, we caught him, he was a, a multiple kidnappings and had killed at least, well, didn't have the evidence that he killed a hostage in another case, just the ransom was paid and the hostage never appeared, so there's only one conclusion. We're coaching, coaching a brother, again, a good guy who would learn, pick up fast, how and what questions, how and what questions, how and what questions. And at one point in time, uh, the kidnapper wants a daily per diem to keep the hostage alive, which we, we got to fight over that because it's a way to test financial resources, not to keep the hostage alive, test the family's resources. So on his own, the brother says, when we run out of money paying the daily amount, what's going to happen? And there's a silence, and this serial killer on the other end of the phone says, it'll be all right. My negotiators in country call me. They, we think we got a positive breakthrough today, but we're not sure what it is. And they told me that. I said, this, this guy just promised never to kill a hostage. Like, I had no idea that it was a lone guy. I thought we were just talking to the boss. Didn't know he was a killer. It was another case where he chopped a victim's ear off sent the ear and video of him chopping the ear off to the victim's company. They got paid. I knew about that. I've been told for a variety of reasons. I'd heard about that. I didn't know it was this guy. Take him completely out of his game with a version of a what question. Saw another one, took another guy completely out of his game with a version of the how question. In a, in a dynamic where you just said we had no leverage, if you thought in terms of leverage, but you got influence. How do you get influence through deference? And that's when we really began to dial in collectively, principally, my son Brandon and I, another guy, Derek Gaunt, very involved in the development of our thinking. And we really narrowed it down to how and what is a way to really get the upper hand in a negotiation. Um, fast forward a little bit here. You got a couple things that are awesome points don't try to force your opponent to admit that you are right aggressive confrontation is the enemy of constructive negotiation i always say when you're dealing with someone give them an out you know yeah. you just give them an out you can say ah you know it seems like this is the best way to do it but i know you you're smart on this stuff too does it make sense and they go yeah you know go ahead and do it that way you know, they you give them an opportunity that they don't have to say, I was, I'm wrong, you're right, go do it your way. No, never do that. And the other one, again, this isn't just for negotiation, this is for life. Bite your tongue. When you're, <laughs> when you're attacked in a negotiation, 
Pause and avoid angry emotional reactions. Instead, ask your counterpart a calibrated question. Just such a such a solid move that will keep you out of trouble. You want to say something back. You know, I, I actually go, I, I tell people, you know, someone starts attacking you or someone, someone starts getting aggressive with you, you know, take a step back, kind of nod your head, show them that you're listening. Don't say anything back to them. Instead, ask them a question. You know, that's going to be a good way to go forward. Uh, the 7, 38, 55% rule. In two famous studies on what makes us like or dislike somebody, UCLA psychology professor Albert Mahabrian. I totally murdered that one. You're not Persian. I am not. You'd know how to say that if you were Persian. I don't know how to say it either. Mahabrian. Okay, we'll go with it. That's good. Sorry there, Albert. We'll call him Albert. Dr. Albert. Uh, created the 738-55 rule. That is only 7% of a message is based on the words while 38% comes from the tone of the voice and 55% from the speaker's body language and face. While these figures mainly relate to situations where we are forming an attitude about someone, the rule nonetheless offers a useful ratio for negotiators. You see body language and tone of voice, not words, are our most powerful assessment tools. Uh, important to remember that important to pay attention. Uh, a lot of us, a lot, a lot of people there, your face gives away so much and it doesn't even matter what you're saying. The look that you have on your face is just, just giving away the way you feel. And it doesn't even matter what your words are. Did you feel like you had to learn to, uh, you know, control your facial expressions. I got my my business partner and my friend Leif Babin. You know, he when he, when we first started working together, when he was pissed, you knew it, and so did everybody else. It was like his face would turn red. You could see how mad he was. And you know, over time, you know, as you know, he started to realize that that didn't help him. Started to learn how to not do that. Is that something that you see people have to recognize and then get get themselves trained up on? Yeah, depending upon the person, there's uh, underlying currents. Um, so it could be for different reasons. The short answer is yes. And the, the longer answer is how do you align your thinking in the moment? A little bit of what you mentioned earlier, like if you're really interested in what the other person is saying and then you worry about evaluating after the fact, you don't have to worry about the look on your face. As a matter of fact, if you're really interested, the more interested you look, the more they're going to talk. So if you can separate the two things out from evaluating, judging what somebody said to just being making sure you fully understand, then facial expressions are not a problem. The people that have a problem with them, and you know, your your guy's faces turn red, making all that's a characteristic principally of the assertive negotiator who can't wait to disagree and is holding it in. The highly analytical type, you know, the people that seem completely emotionally detached when they think you're not looking. They reveal everything and and like uh, their their facial expressions, their their body language. I mean, they almost sometimes they look like they're twitching. 
And so if, if you know who, who's highly analytical, if you're faced with a team of people, do not talk to the analytical guy or gal, but keep an eye on them. <laughs> you gotta kind of watch them out of the corner of your eye because they're gonna be rolling their eyes and they're gonna be sneaking peeks at people at <laughs> moments. I mean, like they are, they are the most honest, most unguarded body language you ever saw in your life if they don't think they're being stared at. Yeah. Uh, let, let me ask you this. So I've been talking about leadership. You're talking about, you write about negotiation. How much interaction, because there's also a ton of similarities with uh, interrogators. How much interaction did you have with interrogators? I mean, I obviously worked with a ton of interrogators in a bunch of different organizations. How much, how much work did you do with interrogators? A fair amount. And there, there's probably about three schools of thought out there. Um, the, the great, the, well, the bad ones are just brute force, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna f- make you uncomfortable physically or emotionally, and I'm gonna try to force something out of you, and that's that's just that just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's counter it's counterproductive. If you if you only care about what works, then you won't be harsh because it doesn't work. Now the other two that are left, there's one thing called eliciting information, which uh, there are a fair amount of interrogators out there that like it. And they, they want to get you into a very short-term mindset and get you to say things that you know to be against your interests. The problem is if you're getting somebody into a short-term mindset, they're going to come a point in time when they regret saying it to you. And you're going to lose their cooperation. Everything's going to fall apart. So it has a shelf life. Now, the rapport-based people, those are the magi- ma- magicians that make cases nobody else can make or make deals no one else could make. And the other side still wants to talk to them. Like when I left surveillance in New York and went inside to investigate what we were talking earlier, became an, an, an inside, you know, uh, open investigator. I was surrounded by guys that had gotten cooperation from witnesses voluntarily that people would just say, like, I got no idea how that guy got that cooperation. One, one agent in particular, his name was Larry Wack. And even, even on the task force, people admired how he got people to cooperate because he was, he was, he developed rapport, relationships with people. Even if he had a hammer, the, the rapport and the relationship, you know, the belief that we will always ha- be able to talk to one another as opposed to me tricking you into a short-term mindset, which at some point in time you're going to feel betrayed. Like the rapport-based approach to deal-making, interrogation wins Every time. Same thing with leadership. We might as well throw leadership in there as well. Agreed. The time I say, well, you know, if you don't do this, I'm going to fire you or whatever, it'll work for that task, but eventually you're looking for another job. Uh, So, yeah, those, those similarities, building relationships across the board. So you just mentioned the analyst. That's one type of person, and you've got a whole section in here about not only you, what kind of negotiator are you, because you got to know yourself, but then also how are you going to interact with these people? You got the analyst that you talked about, which is methodical, diligent. They're not in a big rush. You talked about them. Uh, tell me about the accommodator. Just the, so being an assertive, the accommodator is this weird animal that neither the analysts nor the assertives can really figure out. But the accommodator is really is a very hope-based person 
and very focused on that the moment is pleasant. And then if, if the moment is pleasant and we hope hard enough, then everything will be fine. Now, when we wrote, when we wrote the book, we said the accommodator was focused principally on the relationship, having a positive relationship. And that, that's pretty close to true. Like they want the relationship to be positive, but you know, we worked with people that would see a train coming at us uh, rhetorically, uh, figuratively, not literally. There's a problem coming at us. This person was on a team and we had a training and all the books that were supposed to be there were gone. This guy knew about it for days. The last minute tells us none of the manuals were here. Because he'd been, and we're like, you know this is, the train is getting ready to hit us. We've been here for three days. You haven't said a word for three days. That's not relationship focus because I'm standing on a railroad track and you see a train coming my way and you're not warning me. So you know this relationship is coming to a close. And then we realize in hindsight, and we see it constantly, they're hoping something good happens at the last minute. Everybody's saved. My colleague Derek would say, you know, an, an accommodator will walk you into a minefield knowing it's a minefield, hoping you don't step on a mine. And so the accommodators, I think, are the source of why in the business world people often say hope is not a strategy. Because the accommodator will go with hope alone. And it'll work out, hope alone is probably good somewhere between 20 and 45% of the time. Maybe that maybe that's being generous. Maybe twenty percent of the time, and they're going to remember the twenty percent and ignore the eighty percent when the world turned into a disaster. And so the accommodators are really are very positive people. They're very upbeat, and they're very hope focused. Which is in and of itself, it's not a strategy. It's it's a necessary element. You got to be hopeful it's going to work out. It what it is is inadequate. Now, simultaneously, people love dealing with somebody like that. So we'll see on a regular basis, the accommodators will make more deals overall than anybody else will, but they'll be mostly really sloppy deals that are nowhere near as profitable for either side as they should have been because they simply hoped that things would fall into place. And then the last one, which I think you just self-identified as. Assertive. Assertive. So what's the deal with the assertive negotiator? Just honest. I'm just being honest with you. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm saving you a lot of trouble because I want you to be honest with me, so I'm going to be honest with you. That was stupid. <laughs> That's a dumb idea. That's never going to work. You didn't think this thing, you know, the, uh, the assertive, anybody that describes himself as simply open and honest. And it's always a punch in the face. It's always just that approach. Like you, you the other side's got to know where you're coming from. You, you do have to be honest, but it's how you deliver it. And the assertives are the typically the worst <laughs> at making you. I had I had my partner once tell me, dealing with you is like getting hit in the face with a brick. <laughs> and I remember thinking like. How could that be? I'm the nicest guy I know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like what I t- what I talked about earlier, like me punching you in the face with the truth 
is not a good way to get you to listen. Exactly. Echo always brings up the example of the person that says, you know, I'm just a direct person, but I got to tell you, you were totally screwed up. And again, <laughs> there's not a lot of people like, oh, thank you for being that direct person and telling me how jacked up I am. <laughs> Usually, oh, look, do you occasionally get someone that loves to get coached and love to get told what they, but yeah, you get some people, but a lot of times it just offends them. So that is, so, so when you take these three different personality types, negotiator types. Are we looking to blend? Yes. That's what the goal is. Each type has something really critical they bring to the table. The the assertive, I mean, you gotta tell the other side where you're coming from, otherwise you're making them guess. And you don't make good deals based on guesswork. The analyst, you gotta think things through. You run gotta come numbers. up with it, run, run some numbers. <laughs> you don't have to run them all, run any, run some. And the accommodator, like so many people look at the accommodators and say, that person's making tons of deals, what are they doing? It's in their demeanor, it's in their approach. Um, the, just FYI, for people that are about to order this book, you also kind of give, how do you deal with the accommodator? How do you deal with the assertive? So right. you give both sides of the spectrum. Uh, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit. We mentioned this briefly, this this Ackerman bargain, bargaining, and this is the I call the system the Ackerman Ackerman model because it came from this guy named Mike Ackerman, an ex CIA guy who founded a kidnap for ransom consulting company based out of Miami. On many kidnappings, we'd constantly be paired, paired with Ackerman guys, never Mike himself, who helped design this haggle. And you lay out this haggle. It's a systemized and easy to remember process that has only four steps. Well, you go to six steps here. Um, number one, <laughs> set your target price, which is your goal. Then you set your first offer at 65% of your target price. Then you calculate three raises of decreasing increments, 85, 95, and then 100%. Use lots of empathy and different ways of saying no to get the other side to counter before you increase your offer. When calculating the final, final amount, use precise non-round numbers like 37,893 rather than 38,000. It gives the number credibility and weight on your final number. Throw a non-monetary item that you probably don't want to show you're at your limit. So this is a pretty cool little system. Yeah. Is that is that something you could advise someone to use when they're going to shop for a new car or a used car? Yeah, yeah. It's not a bad model? It, it's, it, if, you, if you're gonna bargain, it's the most effective bargaining model out there. Nothing beats it. Uh, getting into this last, might be the last chapter. Find the black swan. And for, we haven't mentioned this yet, but you've got the black swan group. This is your consulting firm. And a quick description of the black swan. Black swan theory tells us that things happen that were previously thought to be impossible or never thought of at all. This is not the same as saying that sometimes things happen against a one in a million odds, but rather that things never imagined do come to pass. The idea of the black swan was popularized by Nassim Taleb in his best-selling books, Fooled by Randomness and the Black Swan. But the term goes back much further. Until the 17th century, people could only imagine white swans because all swans ever seen had possessed white feathers. In the 17th century London, it was common to refer to impossible things as black swans. But when the but then the Dutch explorer, William de Vlamen, sorry, people of Holland, 
Went to Western <laughs> Just Australia. Apologize to Holland, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I did indeed. Apologies to Holland. Uh, went to Western Australia in 1697 and saw a black swan. Suddenly, the unthinkable and unthought was real. This is a crucial concept in negotiation. In every negotiation session, there are different kinds of information. There are those things we know, like our counterpart's name and their offer and our experiences from other negotiations. Those are known knowns. There are those things we are certain that exist, but we don't know, like possibility that the other side might get sick and leave us without another counterpart. Those are known unknowns, and they are like poker wild cards. You know they're out there, but you don't know who has them. But most important are those things we don't know that we don't know. Pieces of information we've never imagined that would be game-changing if uncovered. Maybe our counterpart wants the deal to fail because he's leaving for a competitor. These unknown unknowns are black swans. So this is obviously something highly important to you since you named your company the black swan. How did you stumble upon this idea? Well, the idea first... um Caleb's book in 2007, A Black Swan, got me thinking about it. I, I like his stuff. I mean, he's he's highly in depth thinker. Um, he's got a he's got a writing tone that is not for everybody, but really in depth. And and so I saw that I I the idea and like the impact of the highly improbable. Well, well, that's what we did all the time in negotiation. It's a combination of two things: we're going to change ourselves in subtle little ways that the other side is never going to see. And we're going to gain the upper hand. We're going to steer it. We're going to steer the negotiation and to the best possible outcome. Now, that that doesn't mean that everything's going to a positive out, outcome, but you got to recognize what the best possible outcome is. So it's a great metaphor for making tiny little subtle changes in your negotiation approach. The other side is never going to see where you're going to make all the difference. It's completely invisible. And then while you're in the middle of it. There's always stuff that you, uh, it, great stuff will fall out of the sky if you let it. The other side's going to say something that works for you. They're going to talk to you. They're going to be softer in a position than you realize. There's going to be pressures on them that you don't understand. Something is always, always there. And in many cases, the other side doesn't imagine it. And to draw a real fine point on this that a lot of people miss, it's a reason why Reading body language to detect deception is almost a waste of time. Because for you to deceive me, you've got to know it's important to have a tell. You have to be consciously covering that up. But a significant amount of that time, you don't even know it's important. So if I'm just looking for tells and not getting you talking, the stuff that you didn't know was important is never going to come out. So so what, if, so what if you're lying? Number one, that doesn't tell me what the truth is. And if we're only focused on what you're hiding, rambling conversation, what might that look like? A woman who's getting um, funding for a film she's doing in Los Angeles a couple years ago, she's trying to get $300,000 out of an investor, very focused on this film being shot in LA, very focused on this amount of money, very focused on what they're tr- the point they're trying to make in a film. But she's mirroring and labeling, and out of the blue it comes out that the financier owns a castle in France, which would be a great setting for the next film. 
something she never would have brought up. The financier, they're talking about a film being shot in L.A., martial arts, this and that, all these other little things. You know, female martial artists beating up bad guys. Like, how is she going to say, oh, by the way, you don't have, I'm working on another film. We want to, it's a medieval film. You don't happen to have a castle in France, do you? Like, that is never going to come up, ever. But she's talking and she's labeling and marrying. And the next thing you know, this, this, this thing comes out that the other person has no idea makes any difference. Changes the structuring of the whole deal. Now instead of talking about one film, they're talking about multiple films. Completely changes the complexion of the, the, the finances that are needed on the first. If she can go back out, she's already got partial packaging on a second film. Like it changes everything. And there's no way that she would have known to ask it. And the person on the other side was, well, instead of 300 grand, what about my castle? Because that's not going to do any good for a film in L.A. Just little things like that. Well, one thing that emphasize the importance of listening is you know at one point you're talking about a case you got a guy that's you know uh, drives to drives to Washington DC in a tractor he's gonna blow himself <laughs> up he's gonna blow up uh, some of the white ones so, so, yeah and you know he's saying he's gonna blow himself up um, but when you actually have you're having conversations with them and you've got multiple people listening. Right. Because listening is so important that if you, look, if you can get more more than one person, you get two or three or four people listening to the conversation and they're going to pick things up that someone else might miss and studying the transcript. So you had someone on the team that realized number one he was a veteran, how can we utilize that? And then someone realized he was like a I don't want to say fundamentalist Christian, but a very strong Christian and you had a certain religious thing going on, so you're able to utilize these things that people caught just through listening, and it changed the dynamics of the whole uh, of the whole negotiation. Right, right. Kept him from getting killed, got him out a day early, and, and so that was, you know, short in a timeline because he was he was really at the end of his rope, and at each hour went by, he had less sleep, which increases the likelihood that he's going to do something stupid. We're still not 100% sure that there aren't bombs there. And so if he'd have made a particular move uh, towards where the possibility, he, he, had, he had his Jeep and a, a flatbed, and they said, we don't know there aren't explosives in a Jeep and a flatbed. If he goes there, we got to take him out. And we're talking to him, and this comes up, and he's agreed to come out in 72 hours. We want to cut, try to cut 24 off of it. And one of the female negotiators, Winnie Miller, says, you know, tell him tomorrow's the dawn of the third day, which is 48 hours, and I'll come out. That's what he says. And he had talked so much about the military and his 82nd Airborne experience, somebody else listening heard the underlying strong Christian beliefs in there, his, his religion, if you will. Everybody's got a religion. Mm -hmm. Everybody, everybody. He's got a religion, just depending upon what it is and how broadly you define it. Uh, just going to hit some of these. Last section of the book I'll cover, um, but I just want to hit some of these highlights here. Let what you know, your known knowns, guide you, but not blind you. Every case is new, so remain flexible and adaptable. 
black swans are leverage multipliers remember the three types of leverage and you go over these in the book positive which is the ability to give someone what they want negative the ability to hurt someone and normative using your counterparts norms to bring them around again there's more detail on the book inside the book work to understand the other side's religion which you just mentioned everybody's got a religion Digging into worldviews inherently implies moving beyond negotiation table and into life, emotional and otherwise, of your counterpart. That's where black, black swans live. Review everything you hear from your counterpart. You will not hear everything the first time, so double check. Compare notes with team members. Use backup listeners. Exploit the similarity principle. People are more apt to concede to someone when they share a culture, someone they share a cultural similarity with. So dig for what makes them tick and show that you share common ground. When someone seems irrational or crazy, they most likely aren't. Faced with a situation, search for constraints, hidden desires, and bad information. And last, get FaceTime with your counterpart. 10 minutes of FaceTime often reveals more than days of research. Pay special attention to your counterpart's verbal and nonverbal communication at unguarded moments, at the beginning and the end of the session, or when someone says something out of line. So really, uh, really just awesome points that apply. To me, they apply to business, they apply to interacting with any human, obviously they apply to negotiations, but, there you go. I mean, we hit the, the wave tops of some of the less. I mean, I probably read less than 5% of this book. Uh, so many good stories. And again, I, I, felt, I feel kind of bad that I skipped a lot of the, lot of the stories themselves. Uh, but get the book, and, and that way you can hear some of the examples behind this. So what, so what, so what are you up to right now? What do we got? We got the Black Swan Group, right? Yeah, we're coaching and training negotiations. Um, uh, all the companies out there that you can get training from, very few of them will coach you, which sort of shocks me. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you not believe in your stuff enough where you, you'll, you'll coach? I mean, literally, the real definition of a coach is somebody, you go into the game, but the coach is right there prepping you. You come out of the game, you could talk. Like, how do you teach this stuff? and not be willing to coach it. Mm-hmm. And so we, we coach across the board. It's a much bigger aspect of the business than I ever thought it would be. We got a, just finished the documentary film called Tactical Empathy, um, looking, premiered at Beverly Hills about 10 days ago, taking our time on a distribution deal. We'll see what happens with that. Outlining a lot of stuff that how, we talked how long about. A do- is it a full-length full documentary? 54 minutes. 54-minute documentary. Got a book uh, for real estate agents, the full fee agent coming out. Um, Steve Schull, the guy that uh, did the book with me, interesting cat. I know Steve for well over a year before I find out he played in the NFL. Like most NFL guys, you know, the first five minutes. (laughs) Not only that, Steve was a Super Bowl captain. Dang. He didn't just play in the NFL. He didn't just play on a team that went to the Super Bowl. He was a captain of the team. Like, I think I finally found that out after I knew him like four years. Like, he just, he doesn't lead with that stuff. But understands the value of coaching. Mm -hmm. Because 
he played for Don Shula. He played for some real coaches. So he, he shares a coaching philosophy that, you know, the stuff that we coach you on, if you do what we ask you to do, it's going to work. So the full free agent's coming out in about two months, and then uh, my son Brandon and I and another colleague are work, working on a follow-up to never split the difference. Should be out in about a year. Nice. Uh, yeah, the coaching piece, I always tell people with, uh, with leadership, it's not an inoculation. You don't just get like a shot and now you're good, now you get it. You don't go to the gym one time and now you're in shape. You don't pick up a guitar, get taught, and now you know how to play it. And it's the same thing with the go. You're not gonna say, oh, I read the book and now I'm good to go. No, you actually need to train it. You need to get coached on it. That's why That's why you gotta do that follow-up. So that's awesome. And we, we do the same thing at our company. I mean, most of the companies that we work with, we do long-term engagements with them. Uh, BlackSwanLTD.com. That's where, that's where people, if they want coaching, if they want to get uh, deeper on this stuff, you're also on social media. You got on Facebook and Instagram, you're at Black Swan LTD. You're on Twitter, at Black Swan GRP. You personally are on Instagram. Big social media guy over here. <laughs> at the FBI negotiator. So did I get all those things right? Is there anything else we need to know about? Yeah, no, those, those are good. Uh, uh, on the website, blackswanltd.com, we got a lot of free stuff There's, to get your skill level up. Like wherever you are, we can meet you where you are. The, another thing we put out that, that is free, but that's not what makes it valuable. We got a, we got a weekly newsletter, concise, actionable. Not 10 articles where you're trying to decide what to do next. Like one article, roughly 700 words, complete, actionable, concise stuff. The newsletter's free. You sign up for it on the website. You get it emailed to you on Tuesday mornings, wherever in the world you are. Take the free stuff. Mm-hmm. You, can get a, you can get a long way with the book and the free stuff alone. Yeah, and everybody that's listening, just beat the king of negotiation because you're getting the stuff for free. So just get in there and get it. Take it from them. Otherwise, you don't win, right? You want to get one up on the FBI negotiator? You got to go. Hey, I got yeah, I got this from the I got this from the master of negotiation. I got it for free. That's how good you are. <laughs> so get in there and sign up for that. Uh, that seems that so that gets us up to present day. Yeah, pretty Miss much. Um, uh, master classes out there. You know, you and I were talking earlier, but the master class is good. It's also it's insane how cheap that is as far as cost. Like the masterclass might be the best deal on earth. And my negotiation course and a b- whole bunch of other cool stuff's on there. Iger's got a course and Sorkin's got a course. Like if whatever you want to learn, you're going to find it on masterclass. So you're on there as well. Awesome. All right. Well, now you know what time it is. Echo Charles. Yes. Do you have any questions? Yes. Oh, here we go. What do you, I took the masterclass, by the way. Very help, very good. That's a very well done one. Um, what's your thoughts on like good the whole good cop bad cop uh, interrogation? Anything that's a manipulation or where you're not being genuine and honest. And if you're good cop bad cop, you're probably one of you is play acting. Yeah, yeah. And it's as a long term strategy. Like you might get short term what you need, but you're always going to find always going to find that you need long term cooperation. And to engage in something that's guaranteed to cause it to go bad is not just from from a mercenary standpoint. You don't do stuff you know is gonna 
hurt you in the long run. Mm. So the, oh, back to the accommodator. So if I'm running late, mm-hmm. not that I ever run late, but <laughs> hypothetically, if I'm running late and then Jocko texts me, how long is it going to be till you get here? And I know probably it's going to be like 20 minutes, probably. But I say in my head, if there's no traffic light stopping me, if traffic is good, I could probably be there in six. So I tell him about five minutes. Because <laughs> I want to avoid giving him the bad news up front. You see what I'm saying? And then I'm hopeful that I make it in the five. Is that me being the accommodator? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's probably <laughs> one of the biggest mistakes people make on a regular basis. Constantly. Like, and, and the fix is the opposite. Like, if, if, you know, if you know you're 20 minutes away, tell him 25. Yeah. Here's my thinking if I would ever that ever were ever to happen. <laughs> I'm thinking I give him the good news so he's not that mad at me. See what I'm saying? <laughs> so if I give him the, the worst possible news for that 10 minutes or whatever, he's going to be mad. See what I'm saying? Then he's already mad when I walk in there. But if the small chance arises that I get there in the five minutes, boom, easy money. See what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, that's how it plays out in your head. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that is so common. Like, and my girlfriend is an accommodator, a wonderful human being, brilliant, mm-hmm. entrepreneur, like so many things about her that are just brilliant. She's, and she's also, she's gorgeous. I'm talking to her on the phone the other day. She's saying, hey, you know, she's nice enough. She's in the middle of a Zoom call. She takes a call anyway. She says, hey, she says, I'm in the middle of a business call. I'll call you back in 15 minutes. I go, okay. And then that night I called her and I said, that was the longest 15 <laughs> minutes I ever heard. Yep. Like I didn't, I, I knew when somebody gives me a vague amount of time, and it's not just her, anybody, I go on about my day because you're trying to be nice. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're trying really hard to keep the other person from being in a bad place. Yep. And time after time after time after time, the lights are not all in, in line. And the data that you get overwhelmingly says that's going to go bad, and they're almost everybody still does it. That was one of my favorite stories from McRaven's book, Sea Stories. Mm-hmm. And you might have been one of those guys out there. They're they're running some op in the Caribbean, and the helicopters are late picking them up, and they are not uh, outfitted for the water temperature. The water's warm, but it still ain't ninety eight point six. And the choppers, when are the choppers going to show? And the choppers, uh, 15 minutes. And they were there for three hours. They wait, you know, and that's, that's, that's not a military op. That's human beings trying to be nice to other human beings. And I, you know, it just doesn't work out. So the, the flip side is overestimate the time. Yeah. You tell them 25 minutes, you're here in 20. He's delighted with you. Yeah. He, well, li- he thinks you're great. Delighted might be a strong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'll, I'll tell you, you know, someone else. The yeah. airlines do this. Yeah. Oh yeah. They, like what, when was the last time? Yeah. When was the la- no? But the opposite. Now they they caught on. Oh. Because okay. uh, their biggest criticism was whether or not their planes are late. Mm. So it doesn't matter what airline it is. I fly all the time. Plane lands, and I, and they go like, well, our gate's not open yet, so we got to wait another twenty minutes before we can get at the gate. And the first couple times that happened, I remember, and I said out loud in the airport, was it a surprise that we showed up? (laughs) Like, this plane is really big. I know they picked it up on radar. They saw us coming from a long way away. How is the gate still occupied? We're not here as a surprise. The airline knew all along when they were going to get there. 
But to fool you, they told you they were going to be there at 3 o'clock. You made your plans around 3 o'clock. They land at 2.30, which is a half an hour early. You think the airline's great, and you're mad at the airport. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody ever blames it. The airline knew all along when they were really going to get there. So when you show up early, when you overestimated the time, the people you're doing business with love you. They think you're fantastic. You put time back in their day. Dang. Yeah. This thing goes deep, man. Well, plus just like uh, building a relationship with people, the more you tell them things that's really going to happen, you know, the, 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 the higher the trust level goes. Yeah. As opposed to telling someone you're going to be there in six minutes and you yeah. show up in 16 minutes. <laughs> over Hypothetically, time, yeah, over time you, that This is a hypothetical. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> completely. What about uh, if someone has food in their teeth and you don't want to <laughs> tell them? Accommodator, right? Yeah, that's going to go bad. You got to know, right? Just got to tell them, right? It yeah. helps them out, big picture, but you don't want to deliver that bad news is kind of the, the deal. That's the plight, right, of the accommodator? Just hopeful. Hopefully if you're they over don't, there, like, fall out and no one has to say If you're over there okay? trying to figure out if you're an accommodator or not, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say, let's. I'll, I'll solve that riddle for you right now. You're an accommodator, accommodator right. for sure. Hey, we're all doing the best we can. Right on, right on. Anything else, Echo Charles? That is, it is honor. I've, I've followed you. I, actually, I got that book right when it came out. So thank you. That's good. That's cool. I appreciate that. What year did the book come out? 2016. Damn, been out for a while. Awesome. Uh, Chris, any any closing thoughts from you? No, I've I've enjoyed the conversation. Um, Delighted at how thoroughly you understand how this applies to leadership and everything else. I mean, you're seeing the parallels right away. You know, I've listened to your other podcasts where you're talking about, like, you know, I left high school, I'm not an educated dude. <laughs> but you're a learner, <laughs> which is really cool, which is really cool. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming down here. And thanks for sharing your experiences and, and all these lessons learned with everybody. I mean, it's just awesome that people can pick up this book and learn what you've learned over the decades of work you put into this. And, of course, more important – uh, thanks for your service. Thanks for your service in, in law enforcement, in the FBI. Thanks for fighting terrorists and kidnappers and, and drug dealers and criminals to keep us safe here on the home front. Um, and the same to you, brother. Yeah, it was an honor to be able to serve. Yeah, amen. Exactly. It was Appreciate a privilege. It. All right. Thank you. And with that, Chris Voss has left the building. Echo Charles. Yes, sir. Excited about that one, huh? Yes. You liked that one? I liked that one. A lot to learn. Yeah. What was your uh, big takeaway besides the fact that you're an accommodator? I know. I'm a, I felt it right mm-hmm. when he was explaining it. I was like, bro, that's... Well, he also said they make the most deals. Well, there you go, right? <coughs> Establishing rapport, all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I look, am I, am, am I an accommodator? I don't know. But mm-hmm. if I'm not, I know I have accommodator traits from time to time. We know that you're not analytic. <laughs> Dang, okay. All and we right. know that you're sure. not assertive. Sure. There's only three options. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, no, no, no. I'd we go for a blend, default. right? Yeah, you blend, blend. Mm-hmm. But you're high percentage accommodator, maybe. Right. We'll go with that from now on. I'm going to keep an eye on it because I, I like to know what I don't know. So you see what I'm saying? So it did shed some light That's on, a good uh, idea. on that thing. Um, it, the, t- the interesting takeaway, geography is more influential than ethnicity yeah, in building. And it makes sense. 
because in Hawaii, everybody's mixed and, mm-hmm. you know, there's all different kind of communities. But uh, if you're from Waimanalu and I'm from Waimanalu, yeah. we, if we, meet, we can meet in Dubai, me and you brothers, yeah. 100%. <laughs> so, boom. Um, so that made a lot of sense to me. And what did what did, did shed some light on is some of your tactics as well. Oh. In a good way. Expand. So, um, okay, one time you called me out for clicking the pen. Mm-hmm. Right? I edited it out so it's not on yep. any episode. but it's, And the way you said it was, is that clicking going to show up on the recording, do you think? <laughs> you said you think. Like me, it was like my idea kind of a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I have to figure out for myself yeah. if it's going <laughs> to, as opposed to, hey, that clicking is annoying and it's going to ruin the take or whatever, yeah. you know? I was like, oh, I yeah. see. Because it was effective. And if you look back on the video, I think I uh, published that outtake somewhere. Okay. Um, if you look on the video, I responded like totally like it worked. Mm-hmm. That little tactic. Yeah. No, the uh, it w- it really was cool to read the book and to identify all these things that they're they're psychological, they're psychological traits or psychological characteristics or psychological maneuvers. Yeah. So they work again. They work with human beings. So it doesn't matter your leadership, your interrogation, your your negotiation. They're all they're all going to have some similar. Similar approaches, yeah. and they are. And so, yeah, it was it was really cool, really cool to read about, really cool to to go through, and then be able to sit here with Chris and talk through it. Uh, and you know, it's awesome. He and again, I kind of did go through. I, I talked about it on the podcast, but like the book has a bunch of cool stories in it, right? Yeah. And is there a temptation just to jump into like negotiation, hostage negotiation, all that stuff? Mm-hmm. But I, I felt like I like really kind of wanted to dive into that tactics the principles themselves yeah. so maybe i was a little bit selfish on that one yeah. but yeah you know what uh, i realized uh about you i think that? i might have told you this before where your your interest is like it's like a 80 20 where you like how things work for sure but only like 20 percent. 80 percent is you're interested in okay so what do we do about it <laughs> so like and i think i'm kind of the if i'm like really trying to be introspective I'm kind of the opposite. So I'm like a 2080 kind of a scenario. So anytime I start going deep on how things work, I see your eyes kind of glaze over and then you snap to and you'd be like, okay, this is, well, this is what you do. This is what you do. It's like you, uh, you interrupt it with the next step kind of a thing. So, it, so I can see why you'd be really into the, the yeah. stories. But yeah, I think the tactics are, are the ones that a lot of the time anyway, if you listen to them, it's like, okay, now I can use them in my yeah. per- particular life. I think they're both together are the most effective for sure. Yeah. The other thing that I, I thought about, look, I don't care how long a podcast is going to be. I don't care if it's 12 hours, yeah, but sure. I also, you know, you have to think, all right, if we start getting into all these cool stories he's gotten here, mm-hmm. they all have their own branches and, yeah. you know, sub stories and details. That's going to be, you know, we get to a point where diminishing returns, right? Yeah, we just yeah. have a 19-hour podcast, yeah, yeah. in which point just get on, just just go and read the book yourself or go get the audio book and go with it that way. Yeah. So that's kind of the kind of how I went with it. But uh, really, just just awesome to have them on here and, and learn from, you know, the subtitle of the book is Negotiating as if your life depends on it, depended on it, right? So he is 
countless times negotiated stuff that it that where someone's life or lives were on the line literally doesn't get more you know I, I I used to say about extreme ownership combat is like life but amplified and intensified yeah well if you can negotiate for someone's life you can negotiate for the car that you want the yep. used car that you want to pay you know 2700 bucks for instead of the 4200 bucks that they're offering it yep, so yeah, all right there you go. Uh, thanks for joining us, everybody. If you want to, if you like this podcast, if you want to support it, and you want to actually support yourself cognitively, you want to be cognitively ready for yeah. those moments. Yep. That's why I'm three deep right now with Jocko Fuel. I dig it. With discipline goes. Now, normally you'd be thinking, oh, you drank three energy drinks today. Yep. You've had a bad day. Yeah, you have to trouble. you have to mark this down as a negative on your overall health. Yep. We're actually not doing that at all. No. Not even doing that at all. Cuz I had one what time is it? It's 4 o'clock right now. I had the first one at like 10:30 mm. prior to a Echelon Front Academy call. <laughs> then I had another one as we kind of started this thing and then I had another one as we kind of got halfway through this thing. Yeah. So what does that mean I've had? Does that mean I've had a bunch of sugar? Does it mean I've had 82 grams? No, I've had zero sugar. I've had some monk fruit, which is a beautiful thing. I've had, have I had, what would that be, three times, have I had 600 milligrams of caffeine? No, I haven't even had 300 milligrams of caffeine. So we're good over here. Plus I've got some vitamin B6, B12. (laughs) You know, I'm good. Yep, doing good. So if you want to be good too, but you want that energy, Go to jockofuel.com, get yourself some milk, which is dessert. Get yourself some go. You can also go to Wawa. We got the ready to drink protein. Available? Available in Wawa. You can, you jockofuel.com, you can check it. Um, We're getting there. But the ready to drink stuff is kind of a game changer. Yeah, it's good. I told you about the chocolate milk versus milk, right? Yes, sir. With my daughter. Yeah. Who is not going to pull any punches. Yeah. She she looked, Pete, you know, we sat down at table at camp, and Pete was all like, bro, it's better than chocolate milk. And she looked at him like he was just yeah. a liar. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I almost had to, like, get her to settle sure. down, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, you can't look at a, you know, a grown man yeah. like he's a liar. But she kind of looked at him like, yeah, and right. he, well, the good thing is, Pete was like, oh, let's go. Yeah. Let's go. Get him out. So he got out the straight, regular, like, chocolate milk yeah. and milk side by side. Taste test. B- well, blind taste test. Yeah. She, she was like, dang. Yeah. That's the, that's the true, that's probably the truest and most awesome test that's ever been performed for taste in the world. Yep. In the world. Probably right. So there you go. Get yourself some milk. Get yourself some ready to drink milk. Vitamin Shop's got this stuff as well. Go in there. Thing is, hey, you gotta remember about Wawa. Somebody, somebody hit me up on uh, social media. They cleared the shelves in Wawa. Thank you. Cause look, it's a war out there. Mm-hmm. Have I explained the war to you a little bit? Yeah. From it's a war. The big companies don't like the little companies. Yeah. The big companies have. Overwhelming firepower in the term in in the form of cash money that they can throw to try and crush the uh, the the up and comers. They don't want that competition. They want to smash. They want to smash Jocko Fuel. They want to smash Discipline Go. 
So what they do is they make maneuvers. They throw money at, at stores. And the stores like to offer something else, but they gotta be able to, gotta make sense. So when you go and you clear the shelves at Wawa, thank you. When you go and you, any of these, any of these stores, when you go in there and get after it, it shows them that there's demand signal to retail and they wanna keep us. As opposed to when somebody throws a bunch of money at them and say, we want you to, we want you to get rid of those guys. Yeah. Think about that. That's called a monopoly. Yeah, the, right? yep. those, are a, monopoly moves, those are monopoly sure. moves. Those are monopoly moves. And so we appreciate it when you help us fight the man, yeah. right? The yeah. corporate entity. That's not a person. There's no person. Those other companies are not people. Yeah. They're not people. They're just big corporate entities. There's big, giant corporate entities. Yeah. No people there. No humans. Yes, We're sure. human. We're here. We're getting after it. Yeah. Ah, so anyways, appreciate it. JockoFuel.com. Go get some of that. Uh, OriginUSA.com. Get yourself some American-made everything. Mm-hmm. Hunt gear. We're getting it out. Certain pieces are out. The pants are out. The Some of the shirts are out. Just get on there and order it. If, you, if it's not available right now, we're making it. And if you want to get it, you got to order it now. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. But you got to order it now. And then we'll get it to you as soon as it's ready. As soon as it's been made here in America by American Hands. Jeans. Boots, jujitsu gis. We don't put that jujitsu gi on sometimes. Rash guards. Let's put that on. Yep. So that's what we're doing. OriginUSA.com. Get yourself some of that. Support America and support yourself. It's true. Also, Jocko Store. Jocko has a store called Jocko Store. Discipline equals freedom shirts. New one is out. It's been out. It's a good one. In what, time the standard for the issue one? Standard issue. Multiple yeah. forms. Multiple forms. Uh, get one. Look, is Christmas. Near, is Christmas near? Technically, maybe, maybe not. But bro, they already have Christmas stuff available. Where was it? My wife came home and said they like she went to Target or Walmart or something, yeah. and they were like, she's like, Christmas gear is up, yeah. available. So is it so, near? This is something to think about. Mm-hmm. We'll say that. So yes, we got some good stuff on there. Some kids stuff on there. Warrior kids stuff on there as well. Oh. So we kind of got everything. Something for everybody. If you want to check, let's it out. face it, the warrior kids need that Christmas hitter. It, yeah, it, that'll be a good clothing gift. Mm-hmm. And we've got some accessories. We've got some good stuff on there. Also, we've got the shirt locker. Mm-hmm. That's I saw a, that that's hol- a good the Halloween one is legit. The Halloween? Kind of legit. Some layers on that one. Let's say we like it. Uh, another good gift idea, by the way. Got some gift cards, too, on there. The gift know. that keeps on giving. That keeps 100%. on giving every month. Get somebody the shirt locker, and then they get a new T-shirt. Every month, yep, that has layers in it. Layers could be one layer, could be seven layers. You get yep. seven layers. You know, you, do we charge by the layer? No, no. Yeah, the layers, layers are just part of the package. Included. <laughs> You're right. But yes, cool designs. People like really like the designs. This is what I'm finding out. And thank thanks for everyone for the feedback. Mm-hmm. So yeah, really good. Cool. Sherlocker, men stuff, women stuff, hoodies, hats, all that cool stuff. Jockostore.com. Stuff across the board. Stuff. Subscribe to the podcast. You know that. Jockounderground.com. We've been recording those, yeah. putting word out, answering your questions. Uh, if you go to jockounderground.com, look, people are getting censored right now. People are getting banned, whatever. We're not gonna, that's not gonna happen to us, at least on the platform that we, it could happen on this platform, whatever platform you're listening to, they could ban us. Yeah. If that happens, we'll be on jockounderground.com. It costs $8.18 a month. If you can't afford it, no big deal. We still, we're still here to support. Look, we know it's hard times right now. 
right? If you can't afford it, email assistance at jockounderground.com. If you can't afford it, cool. Support the cause. Capital T-H-E, the, capital C, A-U-S-E, the cause. Freedom. Psychological warfare, we got flipsidecanvas.com. Books, obviously, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Check that book out, and then all the books I've written. Get that book, Only Cry for the Living by Holly McKay. Uh, just a great book. We put it out on Jocko Publishing. Check that one out, and then all the books I've written. You know what they are. So go get them. Get the Warrior Kid books. Let's face it. That book would have helped you out so much if you had it when you were a kid. It would have helped me. And if you know kids, any kids, get them that book. Once again, Christmas, cool. Get it. Make it happen. Uh, Echelon Front, you heard me talking a lot about leadership today. Well, we solve problems through leadership at Echelon Front. Go to echelonfront.com. And also, up and coming, we've got an uh, a little something that we call the Roll Call, which Roll Call is an event, and we've got one, October 17th in St. Louis, Missouri. Had to just check this, because they told me they still got some seats. Our stuff sells out quick, so Roll Call is for police, law enforcement, first responders, military, October 17th, St. Louis, Missouri. If you can, if you're in that category, go and check that out. It's gonna be, it's, it's our leadership principles kind of geared toward that group of people. Also, we have online training. Said this today. You're not gonna get good at leadership with one book or with one rehearsal or one practice. No, you need to get in there. Go to extremeownership.com, learn about life. Square your life away. Extremeownership.com. And if you want to help service members, active and retired, you wanna help their families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization. If you wanna donate or you wanna get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. Also, check out Micah Fink. He's got his program taking you up and taking vets up into the wilderness so they can find themselves again and rebuild heroesandhorses.org. If you want to follow Chris Voss and the Black Swan group, it's blackswanltd.com. Facebook and Instagram is blackswanltd. Twitter, at blackswangroup. And Chris is on Instagram. He's at the FBI negotiator. And of course, we are also on social media and whatnot. Twitter, Graham, Facebook. Echoes at Echo Charles. I'm at Jocko Willink. Of course, watch out because that algorithm's sitting there waiting to grab you by the throat and drag you into oblivion. Don't let it. Uh, thanks once again to Chris Voss for joining us, for teaching us about negotiation. And thanks to Chris for his service in the police department and in the FBI. Thanks to all the FBI agents that are out there right now doing their best to keep us safe. And the same goes to the rest of our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all first responders. Thanks for everything that you all do to keep us safe. And of course, thanks to our military men and women who are on the front lines around the world right now. We live in freedom because of the sacrifices you make. 
thank you for your service and everyone else out there life is a negotiation and people are not rational they are filled with emotions and biases and judgments and that includes you so pay attention and listen more than you talk not just in negotiation but in leadership and life and until next time this is echo and jocko out